Hey, this is Chris Lockwood, and you're listening to the Chris Lockwood Podcast, Alive. In a Welcome to the Chris Lockwood Podcast, where we have the privilege of hearing from people just like you and me who are seeking, learning, growing, striving to better understand just what it means to be fully alive and how that translates in the day-to-day. Well, hey there, friends. Hope you're having an amazing week, that it's productive, blessed, exceeding your expectations, and all of the above. Well, I'm really excited about this week's conversation with my friend, Ben Green, Who is Ben Green, you ask? Well, besides a solid family man, a person of faith, he's authentic, transparent, and has devoted most of his still very young professional life to working with organizations such as World Vision, Food for the Hungry, and Feed the Children, who are serving developing countries around the globe. And now he's the director of affiliate partnerships of a new project, more specifically, a new museum being developed in Washington, D.C., And I will let him explain more about what that is. But all in all, Ben's just all-around great guy. We met years ago and uh, have remained acquaintances throughout the years, but this is is really the first time I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Ben and really getting to hear his heart, what makes him tick, his struggles, and, and more. On a side note, I'm working to bring more focus to this podcast I want to hone in on topics that can be of benefit to you, the audience, and offering inspiration, hope, as well as offering more practical tools and insight that you can use and that will help push you forward as you seek to engage and thrive in this wonderful gift we have called life. I'd love to hear from you as well, what you're getting out of the podcast, what you'd love to hear more of, and so on. So you can email me at chrislockwoodpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Facebook, leave comments on SoundCloud, as well as Twitter at C Lockwood Music. I love, love, love hearing from you all. So let's get on with it. I hope, I hope this blesses you as much as it did me. I don't know what it is about Ben. I think I get the feeling this guy is 110% into whatever he's doing, whoever he's with, he's engaging, uh, he's focused, and I love being around people like that. So Ben is, a, is a, again, great guy, huge blessing to be with, and I know that this is going to um, hopefully be of benefit to you as you listen. So here is the man of the hour, Mr. Ben Green. It's been kind of this quest to quite honestly prove that we are who we say we are. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that's that's an invitation to all people just to engage the Bible, yeah. period. There's yeah. no, there's no like decision room at the end. There's no like, hidden agenda. <laughs> um, <clears throat> literally it's like, and it's at the Washington, is it at the mall? Like the Washington mall? It's two blocks off the mall. Okay. It'll be 430,000 square feet, eight stories. Um, yeah, all the way from, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, in the history floor to, um, the impact floor and Elvis Presley's personal Bible. Yeah. Um, and it's, We have over 40,000 pieces in our collection, but only about a thousand of them really will ever be 
displayed in the museum at one time. Yeah. Um, because the museum is much more experiential. Uh-huh. And, um, and so it's, a, it's this amazing kind of uh, convergence of, of modern technology with this historic book that mm. has impacted our world whether we wanted it to or not. Right. Like, and I think that's one of the stories of the museum is that it's to show people that in all the different ways this book has impacted your life in ways you didn't even know it. Um, and so, you know, people, like we have a music exhibit piece and people assume like, oh, they'll have the Maranatha singers in there. We've got, you know, <laughs> the Bible's impacting music and really it's you walk in and Kanye West, Jesus Walks is playing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in a good way. It's, yeah. it's going to really open a lot of people's eyes to this book's impact. Yeah. It seems like there's just religious war in mm-hmm. the United States. Has there been a lot of red tape that they've had to like? You know, um, up to this point, I think we've done, it's been pretty smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the people that have to deal with all that stuff might smack me upside the head for saying that. But I think overall, it's been a pretty smooth journey. <laughs> it's been smooth for um, me. Yeah, it's smooth for me. <laughs> I don't deal with all that. But um, I think for, um, I, one of the things that we're going to have to really deal with is probably some media stuff. Yeah. And um, I, I you know, I would call them almost a tax from the media Absolutely. Um, for what this thing will be and what it, and, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, our, the lead patron for this project is um, the Green family, Hobby Lobby, and um, people know some of their story right. and, 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 you know, they, they uh, not too long ago actually took on the, the government um, uh, in, in a suit over a birth control uh, oh, yeah. right. And so... Um, you know, and I, I think there's a there's an automatic perception then that because of their involvement that the museum is going to be a certain thing, right? And um, and so a lot of it is is kind of saying that this. I think the beautiful part about this is that the Greens were this massive contributor to the beginning of this project, but they've said this this book is bigger than us, mm-hmm. um, and they've allowed the Museum of the Bible to take a life of its own. Yeah. And, um, so this is their dream, like they. This is um. It's kind of interesting how it came about, but basically, um, uh, there was a couple of guys from Texas that, that wanted to start a museum, a Bible museum, and I think the original idea was to start it in Dallas, was to open one in Dallas. Right. And um, at that time, the Greens were were donating, um, in some instances, properties to different uh, nonprofits, and so I think these men had approached them about maybe we they can the Greens will donate a property to mm-hmm. us, and instead of donating a property. Um, they ended up donating a couple of items. Uh, they went out and purchased some historic biblical artifacts and mm-hmm. donated to them to them, these two gentlemen. Um, and I think over time, the two gentlemen that were involved in the Dallas idea, just it never gained any traction. Mm-hmm. And so um, they kind of came back to the Greens, still had these items that the Greens had purchased for them um, and didn't have, I don't think, a whole lot else. And so, um, and so the idea was, okay, uh, so now the Greens have these items back again and then people got word that the Greens were purchasing items and so they kind of just started collecting more and more items. Sure. And, um, and so it's mainly Steve Green and and, um, and kind of, I think, you know, his passion for, for some of the artifacts and the antiquities that all kind of point to the Bible. Because some of them, um, the pieces themselves weren't necessarily like biblical artifacts, but some sort of, you know, mainly Judeo-Christian right. Um heritage kind of uh, ancestry artifacts or whatever you'd call that. Um, so uh, 
so yeah, so I think over time, over a period of a few years, he just kept collecting and collecting and collecting. And the next thing he knows, he turns around, he's got 10,000 artifacts in his collection and then 15,000 <laughs> artifacts in his collection. And so I, I think, you know, he kind of decided like, more people need to see these than just my friends and family, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, so then the idea of the museum kind of came back around of like, we, we should open, maybe we should think about opening a museum. And, um, and so, uh, so they started this, this, this idea and they, they hired some research firms to figure out where um, a museum, a Bible museum would be most attended, right? Where people would be um, excited to go and, and experience it. And overwhelmingly, all the data came back that DC was the place. And yeah. we all know that DC yeah. is the museum mecca, you know. So um, it made sense. But, you know, they, they, I think they researched Dallas and they researched DC and New York City and maybe a couple other cities. But, um, but that market, the DC market, just overwhelmingly was the place. Yeah. So they immediately began looking for land, which, as you can imagine, land in DC is not easy to come by. Um, and so uh, eventually, a couple of things, they kind of did some research on a few different ways. Um, pieces of property and um, landed on this one particular piece of property um, kind of by default they were looking at another piece and then um, through the, the real estate agent there um, actually landed on another uh, piece of property that wasn't necessarily listed at the time but they said hey these these folks might be willing to unload it and um, sell it to you and so they actually purchased pretty much the whole block <clears throat> um, two blocks from the National Mall just three blocks from the Capitol building, uh, a couple <laughs> blocks from the Air and Space Museum. Which is a great location. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's really incredible. And then as they kind of did some more research on the place, they also realized that um, one of the only metro stops in that area was right there on our block. Huh. So the subway there um, comes up, the train comes right out um, just underneath our building right. um, there on that block. So, um, so it'll be incredible access to the museum and all of that. Um, so yeah, so then, you know, the dream begins and it was the old Washington design center. They, um, began really kind of trying to tear it down in a way they, the, the outside walls, um, are, uh, it's a historic building, so they have to be kept intact. So it became really tricky on the architectural side of things and how they would build this thing. So they started tearing down the inside and building it from the ground up again and um, keeping the walls intact and so was it originally eight stories no no so we're, we're building up basically you know dc has a height limit and we're basically building up right to that limit <laughs> so um so yeah it'll have uh, and it's actually incredible the pictures uh, the renderings that you, you can see of it but um the, the the roof itself is all glass and you'll have like when you're, when you're in the top floors there you'll have unobstructed view of, of the capitol building right Wow. Um, and, uh, and so it's a, it's an incredible, grief. yeah, incredible. Do they have like, uh, like what, you know, obviously for anybody that like is, you know, connected with Christianity or whatever, mm-hmm. like, it's just like something cool for them, but like, do they have like a purpose behind it or is it just to celebrate the Bible? Or like, is that, is that simple? <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I think the greens obviously have a love for the Bible. And so the, how this thing kind of originated was, was through their love and their heart for the Bible. Um, it's kind of grown into this, um, this entity of, on its own that really just exists to invite everyone to engage the Bible right. period. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, you know, it really focuses on three different components of that. Um, one being the history of the Bible. Right. So, uh, you know, we have Dead Sea Scroll fragments and things that, that people will find really interesting 
um, kind of how the Bible was put together, how it was canonized, um, the different shapes and forms that it's taken from um, the Torah and then on through um, the, uh, the mainline church, the Catholic Bible, um, and then uh, the Protestant Bible that we, you know, that right. many of us have today. So um, we kind of follow that journey and how, how it was formed right. and, um, through the history. And then um, we have the narrative floor of uh, the Bible, so the narratives, the stories. Um, you basically get to walk through and kind of live out those stories. Right. Um, and again, we're not interpreting the text for anybody. Right. This is not a translation. This is not an interpretation. This is just simply an opening the book and allowing people to engage. This is right. in the NIV Museum. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, we, and we've had several people ask, you know, is like, is this King James Version only? Is this, what you know, what yeah. is this? And um, and really, this is a this is to try to open the, the book in its rawest form right. and just let people engage with it. Yeah. How you leave and what you think about the book after you leave is, is, is up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and then we have our, uh, the last, uh, kind of element that we focus on is the Bible's impact. And, um, and that's, you know, how, how, how has the Bible impacted me personally? How has the Bible impacted government? How has the Bible impacted, um, our, our, our justice systems? How has the Bible impacted, um, business as we know it, music, art, um, fashion, we have, you know, People are like, what? The Bible includes fashion? You know, I, a few years ago, one of the greatest, one of the largest um, fashion shows in New York City was a, the Bible's impact on fashion. Wow. And, um, I love those and so, that. yeah, so we'll have, we'll actually have some of those designs and, 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 and wardrobe pieces from, from some of these um, just top designers. Yeah. Um, of the Bible's impact on fashion. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible, the breadth of it all. But I think it's, that's to kind of show people, um, even if you didn't know it, or even if you didn't want it to, this book has still impacted you. Yeah. And so for you to be aware of it, um, and then even just from everyday usage of, you know, uh, we, we use phrases like the Good Samaritan story. Well, if you don't know what the Good Samaritan story is, then how, how are you going to understand right. it? It's common day vernacular, yeah. you know? Um, so it, it's things like that that I think are going to be um, eye-opening, to pe- eye-opening to people. I think um, the quality the size, the scope of this project is going to blow people away. And no matter how big that I set it up to be, I tell everybody, I, I'm going to talk it up as much as I possibly can and how much I believe in this right. project. It's still, when you go and, and you experience it, it's still going to blow you away. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to do it justice. Because right. um, I was kind of checking out the website like the technology and everything is going to be pretty great the technology it'll, it'll probably be the most technologically advanced museum in the world when huh. it opens yeah. um, we are there's there's pieces of technology that are being designed that we're personally having designed for the museum that yeah. aren't even available right now um, you know we have a digital docent system which when you walk in um, you're going to have be handed a tablet and that tablet can be set on this table it's like a it just looks like a big um, television screen table laid flat. You set the tablet on top of it, and immediately um, you kind of get this glow of, of all of these elements of the museum kind of around your tablet. Mm-hmm. And you tell the tablet how much time you have. You tell the tablet the, the things that are most important for you to see during that time frame. Right. And it will, it will provide a personalized guided tour for oh. you and walk you through um, the museum to see the best parts that, that are most intriguing to you yeah and so 
Um, and it'll even, like, if you stop at a certain item and you're spending too long there, it'll say, hey, Chris, you need to get on, move along, man. You're not going to be able to see everything you want to see if you don't um, hurry up. Um, and so, yeah, and then it'll, it'll recognize you the next time you come back as yeah. well. So as soon as you come back in, hey, Chris, this is what you saw the last time. Do you want to pick up where you left off or do you want to set a new guy, you know, set a new uh, uh, itinerary? So, yeah, it's, it's quite the... Um, you know, like I said, maintaining that's going to be a ball. Like, oh yeah, it, it's uh, <laughs> whoever's behind that. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's part of the fun of this project. You know, we have we have an incredible IT team, and um, and they are they're working so hard to to make this the you know just it's going to so add to the experience yeah. overall. Um, and we've got ideas that you know keep popping up. I mean, you know, um, there's there's things that um, I probably sh- shouldn't even talk about right now, but um, that are just going to be incredibly exciting. Yeah. For, was that and that was the purpose of the trip to the Holy Land that you guys just went on? Was was it ideas or like what was the purpose of that? So the purpose of the trip is um, I, I gathered some of the most influential people um, throughout kind of the three different I hate to call it three different sectors, but it, it's it, throughout the kind of the breadth of of the um, the faith spectrum that we're in mm-hmm. right so we have the the jewish faith that's so heavily represented in the museum um we have the catholic faith that's so heavily represented and then the protestant faith mm-hmm. um and so what i wanted to do is get influential people from each of these areas yeah. and that kind of run the spectrum in those areas um to to come on this trip with us to one um learn about the museum at a deeper level um to we went to rome first to kind of observe the beauty of the Catholic faith mm-hmm. and the depth of it all and the history. Um, and then we even touched on some of the, the Jewish faith there. And then we went to Israel um, to dive deeper into the Jewish faith. And then, of course, the early days of, of the Protestant faith. Right. So, um, you know, it, what we wanted to do was take them on this journey um, and, and really um, open up the beauty of these different traditions mm-hmm. um, and have them explore and, and, and really... Um, you know, experience these 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 amazing traditions at a level that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. Because right. this is our hope. When the Museum of the Bible opens, um, for people that that maybe can't take trips to Israel, they, they whether it's you know from a financial perspective or anything else, um, for people who can't take trips to Rome, people who can't take these other you know trips to these other parts of the world and experience the beauty of it, we want this to be the next best thing. Right. Um, and in fact, I mean. For what you'll be able to experience in a day at the Museum of the Bible, it would take many, many trips to Israel and to Rome to really experience yeah. all these things in, you know, in one day. So, um, and so, you know, I think it was, it was a real journey um, through these faith traditions and, and the beauty of them all. And then kind of the areas where we intersect. And, and, the, and the goal of this um, is to show the commonalities that we have. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, the Jewish faith being the foundation of, of us that claim Protestantism, right? So, um, you know, and, and to see that uh, the beauty of the, story, the study of the Torah and um, and how much we have to learn from yeah. the Jewish people yeah. and, and their um, in their study. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of the goal is is to get these people to kind of understand and get bought in, and yeah. they're already influencing people now in right. favor of the museum. So they're involved in. The museum. Yeah, they're, I would say their voices are advocates. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, and some of them had didn't know much about it before the trip, right. so it was kind of, you know, diving in. But uh, but most of them um, had a pretty good understanding before they left, and then obviously a much deeper understanding coming home, and, and have just fallen in love with the overall vision. Yeah. 
That's great. Was that your first time Holy Land, Rome, and stuff like that? Yes. Was it? I mean, you've been all over the place. Yes, I know. I've traveled all over the world, but I usually travel to places that a lot of people don't necessarily want to go. Um, <laughs> this was this was places that people like love to go and yeah. are bucket list trips for people. So um, yeah, I've been all over the world, many many countries, um, but this is my first trip to both uh, Rome and uh, in Italy and and, um, and then of course Israel. So yeah. I mean clearly um, this is part of the, the job and the museum but like just on a personal level what, what was the trip for you? What did you yeah. take away? You know um, I, I, a friend of mine that was actually on the trip you know, he viewed it as a pilgrimage and um, and I would say that was kind of the same for me. Uh-huh. Um, my faith journey has been not a one of ease. Uh-huh. Um, it's been a one of constant struggle and, and wrestling and doubt and uh, you know, one day belief and the next day, um, God help my unbelief. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, I think for me, it was trying to rekindle some of those like, um, sentimental, um, feelings of faith and, um, and how we interact with the divine and how, how he interacts with us and, and what that means. And, and so, um, I viewed it too as a kind of a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it, it was a little bit difficult because I was working at the same time, Absolutely. you know, I'm kind of, I felt responsible for all these people. I felt responsible that they're having a good time. And, yeah. um, and so making sure that all the, the personalities are, are enjoying themselves. And, and, and so, you know, there's a little bit of stress that yeah. comes with that and just making sure that everybody is enjoying themselves. But, but you know, still, you know, getting to see uh, Israel from that perspective. Um, and, you know, one of the things we were able to do because of our relationship with the government there is, we actually took a helicopter tour in Israel. Oh my gosh! Um, and we were up, you know, uh, all, all in all, about three hours in the air of um, uh, just viewing Israel from from an aerial point of view and seeing the landscape. The landscape, and I think you know, growing up as a child, you read all these stories about Jesus and you uh, and, and and the different things that happened throughout even the Old Testament, and and you think uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, and you think like, you know. Um, it, it, you, you feel like it's separate worlds. Yeah. Like this happened here and this happened way over here and this happened way over here. And, and when you go there and you see how actually how the proximity of it all, how close together it all right. is. Um, and then the beauty of the landscape was unreal. Yeah, I mean, I, I just was blown away. Yeah. Um, and I, I should have known that, but I, I just, I wasn't expecting to be very, that overwhelmed by yeah. the landscape, which I was. So. Did it reinforce like, cause um, <clears throat> Everybody I've ever talked to that go over there, they always talk about like you read about it, you read your Bible your whole life, and and it's not until you s- s- go over there yeah. and you walk in the places that you've read about so yeah. that it becomes like real to you. Is yeah. that sort of the same thing for yeah, you? Yeah, they do. It does. It comes alive, and um, you know, I, I think in, in some instances, unfortunately, it can be it's become commercialized in certain places, right. you know. Um, and so, uh, but but you know, we we took a boat out on the Sea of Galilee. You know, and just to like Did you try to walk on it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I know. Like I said, I struggle with my faith, so I don't want to doubt. Um, but I, um, you know, I, I think just just sitting there, um, looking out on that on that sea and, and thinking about all the stories. You yeah. Know? And um, and and so yeah, it, it is a it was a huh. a very um, reflective and introspective trip as much as it was a communal. And, right. You know, that's you know, awesome. Yeah. Hey, so like I'm gonna put the link up to the to the museum, uh, but when you go like the website says one million, one million names be counted, be heard, be amazed. Like, what is that? What's the meaning behind that? So, um, one of the incredible campaigns we have going on right now, in Museum of the Bible, is 
the the beauty of this book is that it's not for the classes; it's for the masses, mm-hmm. right? It's that it's for everyone to come and engage. This is not um, while the museum is going to be top quality, very Smithsonian um, as far as quality and scope goes. Um, this book is a, is approachable. It is it is um, it's for all people, and so. Um, and, and so we wanted to kind of reflect that in this campaign and that, um, you know, we want people, the, the museum's goal is to, to celebrate the Bible, to honor it, and then to open it up for people to engage it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we want, uh, we want people to come along that journey with us. And so one of the ideas was to create a wall where, you know, a lot of times you, you hear these building campaigns where, Folks that get their name inscribed on the wall are the big givers, right? right. They're people that give mega dollars and then they get their name inscribed on the wall and so they get honored in that way. The million names wall is is really um, really reflective of what we feel this book is, and this is that everybody's honored. Hmm. So no matter any size of gift, you know, whatever gift you get, whether it's five dollars or fifty dollars or five thousand um, dollars, you get your name inscribed on the wall of the museum. Wow. And it's going to be done in a real kind of artistic way um, for people to, to experience it. But you'll get to go and you'll, you'll get to find your name and yeah. see your name inscribed on the wall of the museum of the Bible. And this will, you know, stand the test of time type thing. Um, and leave a legacy. And so, um, and just saying, you know, I, I, and we're not asking people to say, hey, I agree with everything that all these people agree with on the Bible. Yeah. Or we, I agree with, this is simply a I believe this book should be honored, celebrated, and engaged, yeah. period. Um, and, and so this is for all people to come in and lend their voice and say, yep, I, I stand as one of the, one of the million. That's good. Um, and so our hope is to, it's, it's really ambitious. Um, you know, I don't know that anybody's, um, you know, we started this campaign uh, with less than two years before opening. And so um, I don't know that anybody's ever raised a million donors in two years, uh, but uh, we're going to give it a shot, you know, and, and because we feel like there's enough people out there that will say, um, yeah, I stand with the Bible yeah. and, and um, I want to, I want to be counted um, and, and, and have my voice heard alongside these other people. Yeah. When is, uh, when is grand opening? So grand opening will be November of 2017 okay. and we'll have a huge ceremony and we'll have, um, it'll, it'll be a celebration um, it's a, um, you know, we're on track to definitely open then. It's going to open then, uh, re- regardless of whatever happens between now and then, but it, it will open, um, God willing. And, and it's, you know, we'll probably have some soft opening stuff going on before, right before then. Yeah. Um, but come November of 2017, the doors will open. Um, and, um, yeah, we invite everybody in. Yeah. When did they kind of start going public with the, uh, um, the woman in names and stuff like when did they start advertising? It was late last fall. Okay. So, so yeah, so we, um, you know, we kind of launched this campaign. It really came, I was in a, I was in a meeting, a coffee meeting, honestly, with our president, Carrie Summers and our chief development officer, Tim Smith. And we were just brainstorming ways to get more people involved, mm-hmm. right? We want to, we want to reach the masses with this message. And so, um, and how do we get people excited about it, engaged in it, um, and, and a part of it. And, and so, um, Carrie Summers, our president, said, you know, we're talking about this wall of inscribing names and people. And he said, I'd love to see a million people up there. Yeah. Well, then somehow <laughs> at the end of that meeting, a million names campaign was born. And, um, 
And so now um, that's kind of my, uh, one of the things I oversee is that yeah. campaign within Museum of the Bible. And so that's, that's one of my missions right now is to go out and find as many people as I can. To, that's great. To, now you're, you're here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Are you going back and forth quite a bit or are you staying here in Nashville? So right now the headquarters of Museum of the Bible are located in Oklahoma City. Okay. Um, we, uh, we have offices in D.C. And of course, obviously the construction for the museum is ongoing. Um, and we will eventually obviously expand our staff, of course, um, as we get closer to museum opening, that sort of thing. Um, but the, the headquarters will probably stay in Oklahoma City for, for the foreseeable future, um, just to mitigate cost. Um, mm-hmm. Office space in DC is much more expensive than it is in Oklahoma City, yeah. so um, it, just to, um, just for, as for cost effectiveness, we'll stay in Oklahoma City with our headquarters. Um, and so much of my trips right now are more to Oklahoma City than okay. they are to D.C. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do go to D.C. every couple of months mm-hmm. um, and am thrilled to see the progress that happens just in that short time uh-huh. span, those tor- short time frames in between visits of what's going on at the museum. Um, I'm, I'm headed there uh, in another week or so. Um, and I'm ex- I was just there you know, a month ago and I know that it'll be completely different than yeah. when I was just there. Um, it's just that much is happening. Are you over the travel? You know, you uh, so I know, I know. I, I, and I, I love the travel. Um, I, I think the biggest difficulty for me is balancing the life, the home life, the yeah. kids. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and, and you know, a, a wonderful wife that, that puts up with my travel. Um, and so I think for me, it's, it's the balance. I, I love the travel, but I just want to make sure I'm balancing that yeah. well with my Being home life. Being present when you're home. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I want to, um, I kind of want to like backtrack mm-hmm. to baby Ben Green. Yeah. <laughs> like now you're a Florida boy. Yeah. All right. Where did you grow yeah. up? I grew up just North of Tampa. Um, was born in Clearwater area and then moved, um, just a few miles North of there. Um, right on the coast around the Gulf. Okay. Um, and I uh, grew up in a little town uh, called Spring Hill, uh, Florida actually. Huh. And, uh, yeah, my parents moved from Spring Hill, Florida to Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is oh, funny. funny. Um, but yeah, so it, it was, uh, you know, I was just a little Southern Baptist boy growing up in, uh, middle, middle Florida and, and, uh, right on the golf there. And, um, yeah. Nice. Are you a football fan? Huge football fan. Gator? Seminole? And no, no, no. I'm Either? a Seminole. I'm a Seminole. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I, you know, from my, from a very young age, my dad was a huge Florida State fan. Okay. Um, big Bobby Bowden fan, and so um, just from a young age, I remember you know cheering on the Seminoles, and um, and then became obsessive at some point during yeah. that time, and I'm not sure when, but it, it still lasts today, it persists, <laughs> and now it's it's being handed down to my son. Who, Dude, I totally get it. I'm what, an Alabama fan, and so it's yeah. like it's there's something about Southern football, man. Yeah, just... yeah, it's amazing. And <laughs> one one game a year, Hutch and I always go down to Tallahassee nice. and attend a game, and he looks forward to that every single year. Oh, and I don't know if he looks forward to it more than I do, but um, we just have an incredible time together. And what and, a great uh, bonding so, time! Yeah, too. yeah, we've done it the last several years, and <laughs> it's a blast. So, now, what was like? What was home life like for you? Like, yeah, I, you know, I I feel like it was. Um, I have a I have a older sister that's about 13 years older than I am and a brother that's about 11 years older than I am. And, um, and so I was the baby. Um, my parents, you know, we were, we were very, uh, my mom was a church secretary for a lot of my, uh, my uh, child life and, and through my adolescence. And, and so, uh, I was, you know, grew up Southern Baptist church. Um, and, uh, we were, 
pretty much in church every time the doors are open. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, it was a pretty standard. I went to, a, uh, I went to public school for my first, from kindergarten through fifth grade. And then, uh, toward the end of fifth grade, I started, um, in a private academy there. Um, and, I uh, went through that all the way through high school pretty hmm. much and, um, and graduated from a private school there. Yeah. So. You, you say you have a brother and sister? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So a brother, um, that's, uh, yeah, about 11 years older than me. Sister is 13 years older than me. Sister's in Murfreesboro, just down the road. How funny. Um, so I get to see her, um, fairly often, um, not as often as I'd like, but, uh, and then my brother, uh, actually lives in Kansas city, okay. um, and, uh, works alongside of, um, Google there in yeah. their fiber doing fiber to the home wow. and stuff so all yeah. that rage of uh, google my brothers there in the middle of it all oh so um in kansas city so yeah so they um um and my brother's married five children um my sister uh is married and has four kids so jeez yeah. four kids for you guys you got four kids no 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 <laughs> no we're, we're done we had um uh we have our boy have our girl and haven we, we thought we may have several but um Haven helped us go, you know, I think we're good. I, I, you know, <laughs> she's our wonderfully demanding child. So, I have um, two girls. It's the girls, man. So I totally yeah, get it. Like, yeah. It's, it like one, you think it's going to happen at 16. It happens at. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she's, she's, she's sick going on 16 for sure. So she's, <laughs> um, but she's, she's amazing. Uh, she, um, she loves life and just teaches, teaches me a lot about how, yeah. how I love life. Oh, yeah. So, and your parents are up here. They're up here now. Yeah. Okay. So they're in, they're in Spring Hill, Tennessee, right down the road. Um, and, uh, and so my dad, um, what did yeah. he do? What was, uh, whenever I, uh, right before I was born, my dad, um, actually worked at, for McDonnell Douglas at NASA. Okay. And, um, and right before I was born, he took a different job and really kind of took a whole new career path in sales. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh in flooring flooring sales actually and so then he basically stayed in flooring all of all of my life yeah. um and, and it actually still is today he still works at a little um flooring shop down in downtown franklin oh wow so um yeah so he's uh still does that today and and mom is retired and um so she's uh stays home and dangerously surfs facebook so um <laughs> yeah nice <laughs> what were you like what was uh <clears throat> Um, what were your dreams? What were you thinking about doing when you were a high school kid? Like, what did you see? Gosh, you know, I, I was, I was always into sports heavily. And yeah. so I had, I had delusions of being a professional athlete, um, at five foot seven, 124 oh pounds, you know? Um, and so I always thought I was going to be some sort of pro athlete when I was little, but, um, getting older, I, I got into, um, I, I guess probably by college time, I really decided I was going to be. Um, a guidance counselor in high school. Mm -hmm. um, huh. You know, our, my guidance counselors pretty much told you what classes and you needed to get into that certain college or what credits you needed to do this or ACT or SAT scores and that sort of thing. And I thought, gosh, there's got to be so much more to guidance counseling high school kids yeah. than telling them what credits they need to get yeah. into certain schools. And so I, when I got into college, my, my goal was I, I majored in psychology. My goal was to... Um, to go on and get a, a, a master's degree, um, to counsel and, and, huh. and, and to go back into the high schools and, and do that. And, and so, yeah, so college, I was going to go, I was going to go save the teenage youth, um, uh, of the world and, and, um, and just kind of give back in that way. That yeah. was, that was my goal, my dream. That's a great idea though. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's, it's never true. came to fruition, but it's a great idea. I mean, it, it is, it is, uh, I mean, I, I just, 
going out into the world when you're leaving high school, like how literally ignorant and dumb we are, you know, like having a counselor that can really kind of be there to sort of like yeah. prepare them. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is what you're really going to face. Like, yeah. This is what you're stepping into. Get ready. And, yeah. Pouring and investing in the kids, I think is a huge, uh, there's a huge opportunity there. And unfortunately, I don't think there's enough emphasis being placed on it. I think even, even those guidance counselors that do have that ambition and, and want to um, invest in kids in that way, don't have the capacity because yeah. there's simply not enough of them yeah. you know, to deal with the amount of kids that are, um, that they're having to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And so, um, I think there's just a shortage for one, um, and there's just a bandwidth capacity problem, um, across the board. So anyway, yeah, that was my goal was to go and do that. And, and, um, those plans changed a little bit, um, <laughs> after graduating college and, and, Which you um, went where? I went to Southeastern university okay. in Lakeland, Florida. Um, and I graduated with my degree in, in psychology, um, why psychology? Bachelor of Science. Well, it was to it was to go on to, to get that ma- that master's degree in counseling. Yeah, yeah. and um, and so uh, minor in Bible, and um, and so yeah, I graduated there. Uh, immediately got married, and my wife and I moved to Nashville um, for her career, really more than yeah. more than mine. And, How old um, were you? <clears throat> I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, I was just thinking that the other day. I think it must have been 23. Okay. Um, Which is, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, our parents got married at like 18 and 20. Totally. You know, like, so yeah. It's not really that early, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, um, it was, uh, we, fresh out of college, um, we, uh, we got married, in fact, I think the, uh, the month after I graduated, yeah. we got married. And y'all met through, like, seeing her on the road, right? Is that kind yeah, of so, um, when I was at Southeastern, I traveled with a singing group um, that helped go out and kind of represent the music department mm-hmm. from the college. And um, I became really dear friends with a girl that was out on the road with us at the time that was also also a singer. And uh, she uh, became a part of this group called Truth, mm-hmm. which you might have heard of. I um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so she said, there's this girl out here, you got to meet her. And so I was introduced to a friend. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and so we really dated long distance on the phone for mm-hmm. the first uh, several months and we're engaged very quickly. Um, our engagement was a long one though from, from engagement date to wedding date. So, um, and, and then we, uh, yeah. So as soon as I graduated, that was my goal. It was like, let's, let's grab let me graduate college and then we'll, you know, we get married. So, um, so we did that, moved to Nashville and, um, really kind of figure out what I was going to do. If I was going to try to go get that master's in counseling yeah. or if I was going to find a job and, why did y'all move to Nashville? Was it Avalon? Was it? Yeah. So, um, kind of a crazy story, a crazy, crazy turn of events. But basically, I had I had been offered a job in Nashville um, before our wedding, and um, as soon as I graduated college, I had a job lined up, and um, it, for one reason or another, the, the, that job fell through right after we got back from our honeymoon, mm-hmm. and we were literally supposed to be moving to Nashville the following week. Um, so I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? And now I had a job. Now I don't have a job. I got this new wife. Um, and now what am I, how am I going to take care of her? Um, and so it, it was one of those things where I just kind of felt that, um, you know, it's like immediately you're get, you get married and things got to fall apart. And right. I'm like, oh, this is not how it's supposed to work out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think, uh, we were, we were still in Florida at the time and I got a call from a buddy of mine who sings on cruise ships and said, Hey Ben, you know, I know you're looking for something. Why don't you go sing on a cruise ship for a little bit? I was like, well, I just got married. You know, it's kind of difficult, <laughs> but it was the job I had. It paid well, and um, so you did that. So I did that. Did you? Yeah. So 
I, awesome. um, I went and sang on a cruise ship for several months. Um, and during, so right before I left to go on the cruise ship, I'd already accepted the job right before I left. Um, Melissa, my wife, uh, got a call from, um, from Avalon. Mm-hmm. Um, she was scheduled to go on tour that fall with Kirk Franklin and, um, and got a call from Avalon to come and join the group. And so, um, so she did that. She went and joined Avalon. And so while I was out on the ship, she moved all of our stuff, um, with uh, friends and family. She moved all of our stuff from Florida to, to Nashville. Oh. So when I got back from the cruise ship, I lived in a new place. Um, you know, she bought a car, picked out the, the apartment, the, everything. So, um, I came back to a new life, you know, obviously to my, uh, to my newlywed wife and, wow. um, and, and really a new life altogether. How long were you out? Well, I signed a six month contract and I lasted a little over three months. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what made you cut it short? Was it just, um, right around that same time, uh, we found out my dad had cancer, okay. stage four cancer. Yeah. And so, um, from, it was kind of a combination of really going, gosh, I really miss my, my wife. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then my dad going through what he was going through and really feeling like I needed to be um, back on land mm-hmm. uh, to be able to, because even just contacting them by phone was incredibly difficult on yeah. the cruise ship. So, um, so just kind of getting back involved in that and family life and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I was able to, to leave three months early and, and uh, come back home. Yeah, so. I, um, I sort of live vicariously through... Uh, Sean Johnson. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's the one that got me on the ship. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, he still looks like he's 20 and then he's all over the world. I know. And like, it's like different islands. 24 seven tan. You totally. Know? <laughs> Just yeah. like so, sipping pina coladas every day. That's just, yeah, I, I know that's a jerk. Uh, it's amazing. And I think, uh, you know, especially when you, when you have the seniority that he does on the ship, it's like, I mean, you, oh, he's you the get treated now. like a passenger, you know? Yeah. And, and they're just like, yeah, it's amazing. It's incredible. Unreal. Now, like, so, like, you get back to Nashville, um, did, is that when World Vision kind of popped open? Yeah, so I, I came back to Nashville really trying to figure out what I was going to do, because, like, you know, the job had fallen through, and so I get back to Nashville and trying to figure out, okay, uh, what is next for me? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I kind of flirted with the music scene a little bit, um, and... Um, did you do, um, did you do True Ride? Yeah, well, I was, I was in True Vibe for um, a very, very, very short stint. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And that didn't work out so well. And so um, I, uh, I served tables for a while at the Green Hills Grill uh, while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then um, a job came available through World Vision to go on the road, actually with Avalon, huh. my wife at the time, to set up the booth for World Vision and talk about... Um, projects all over the world where World Vision was going in and, and doing development yeah. and providing clean water and food and um, education and that sort of thing. And so um, I pretty much immediately fell in love. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, like, that's that was totally off your radar to do something like that. Yeah. You know, in college, I, was ve- I got very much into some social justice movement stuff yeah. and, um, and, and really... I knew quite a bit about development and so just from interest um, and uh, and so it wasn't necessarily out of left field but to have um, to kind of find a career in that world I, I was not on my radar yeah. um, and when it presented itself it was like it was this was perfect yeah know? like what about it like attracted you to it you know I think again kind of going back to this original dream of like trying to invest in youth right yeah. and and um, and pour into people. I think that idea of, um, 
of coming alongside communities all around the world that are um, don't have the resources that they need to thrive um, and helping them get there uh, and um, providing them ways to do it for themselves and not doing it for them, but um, you know, providing them that hand up. And um, it, it was just, it was incredibly interesting to me, it became a huge passion in my mm-hmm. life, um, still is to this day. Um, you know, the idea of, um, of development all around the world in these areas where, um, yeah, they just don't have, they don't have the necessities of life. They don't have the resources to, to live day to day. Um, so, then, so you did the, you were with Avalon speaking. Well, it was so, really Jody McBrayer was doing the speaking out okay. there. I was mainly setting up the booth and then answering questions. People came to okay. the booth and helping like, uh, people sign up to sponsor children and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, was it more like, did you have to kind of like read pamphlets and just educate yourself or were you? Yeah, I kind of dove in. I mean, I, I, I you know, probably went into the website. I don't remember as much now this, um, exactly how it all happened, but I, I did. I educated myself. I immersed myself yeah. in, um, in that world um, and, and really was trying to learn a lot, e- even not even just necessarily on the marketing and, and fundraising standpoint, which is where they were, the, the department I was working in, but even more so... Um, what is good development? What does it look like? I wanted to educate myself on, on the actual practical work that was mm-hmm. happening in the field. Um, and so, so yeah, I did a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of study, um, and really learning about, um, about uh, effectiveness and, and development work and, um, and how it can be done really poorly yeah. um, and, and really hurt people. Um, that um, We're going to get know. to that because I, yeah. I, I have a lot of questions about sure. that because I know that you probably have a great first-hand perspective on, <laughs> on all of that. Like, how did your role grow at World Vision? So, uh, yeah, I kind of went in as, as a tour rep and, and just worked my way up into the office there. And then... Um, uh, They're here in town, right? They, they are. They are. The headquarters are in Federal Way, Washington, right outside Seattle. Um, but they have an office here okay. in Nashville, um, in the Franklin area. So, uh, so yeah, they... Um, you know, World Vision really taught me a lot about, um, about development, about good development. And... Um, and so, yeah, I kind of worked my way up there and as an account executive and, um, and then, uh, someone overseeing a couple of the artist reps there and then, um, worked there for, I was in, I was at World Vision for over six years, um, and, um, was approached by an organization called Food for the Hungry, um, to come and, and basically help them, uh, open a, a Nashville office, mm-hmm. Um, for their artist program and that sort of thing and take over their artist program. Which is, for people that wouldn't know, like what what that is. Yeah, it's basically going out and finding partnerships and advocates that that are mainly in the music world, music space, and really primarily in the Christian music space who will stand on stage every night during their concerts and say, hey, I really think you should um, consider sponsoring children tonight. Um, And um, they really kind of wanted to add another element to their music outside of just maybe entertaining people for a night um, or for those that are in the Christian space, you know, kind of add an additional uh, spoke, if you will, to their ministry mm-hmm. um, in, in, in providing, uh, you know, food and clean water and things like that to, to children in need. Yeah. What, like, what was, was the, uh, the involvement in building something and starting something? Was that what was appealing to leave World Vision? I mean, or yeah. what, I mean, what was it about the founder? Yeah, I think it was, it was the idea to... Um, I, at heart, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur, and so um, I always have ideas you know, for different things and, and wanting to build things and, and make uh, 
current businesses better at what they do or uh, more strategic. And so and it really was, I think it was the idea of, of, of setting out and starting my own thing yeah. um, and really building a program. Um, and, and so, so yeah, that was really appealing to me. Um, I, I felt like it was, it was kind of a, a great next step in a, in a career in this kind of war in this world of development, um, and fundraising. And so, um, so it was just a very natural move yeah. you know, for me. That's great. So, so I, um, you know, I was thinking Ben probably doesn't have a lot of like Wikipedia stuff out there or whatever. And so I was looking for you online and then I came across your website. Your two blog posts. Oh my gosh. That I never never officially launched. No, dude, but the posts, I read both of them, are like really profound. I'm like, dude, I mean, if you're going to say two things, they're awesome. And so like, uh, I wanted to read this quote here. Um, The first one I read was that I may lose my job. Mm -hmm. And um, which is like your response to like uh, one of the colleagues at FH saying mm-hmm. God called and we responded until poverty ends worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so you say progress will continue to be our compass and the livelihoods of the most vulnerable, our measuring stick. Uh, we will still get, th- we will get there and we will not stop or shut up until we do. And I now believe in staying with Dr. King when he said the moral, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. It will take dedication, sacrifice, and smart strategy, but we will arrive and I will lose my job eventually. His kingdom come, his kingdom come. I love that sentiment mm. of losing your job yeah. eventually. Like it's, I, um, I read, um, it was uh, Howard Buffett's book, uh, 40 Chances. Mm. Um, it's uh, Warren Buffett's son. Yeah. Uh, 40 Chances, Finding Hope in a Hungry World. Um, and essentially he said the same thing where it's mm. like he's going to work his foundation out of business one day. Yeah. He actually has a date that he's working towards. And I was like, that's, that's incredible. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's lofty. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a, um, that's kind of, it should be all of our goals in development yeah. really to work ourselves out of a job, even within the museum of the Bible stuff work that I'm doing now. Um, the goal is to go out and find that donor that will, that will put me out of work. Yeah. I mean, that's every day I go and try to find and try to mine that donor that's going to say, you know what, this is a project I passionately believe in. I'm going to, I'm going to write that check. I'm mm-hmm. going to do, um, you know, what needs to be done to complete this thing. And at that point I'll be putting on a resume again, yeah. you know? Um, and, and so that, but that I think for us in development, um, especially tackling something like, uh, you know, from a global development standpoint and world poverty, um, and th- quite honestly, there has been so much progress uh, in that space. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've made incredible strides for you know for those that, that live on on less than a dollar a day. That that percentage has gone way down in the last 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that live in extreme poverty, the percentage has gone way down. For those dying of HIV and AIDS, way down. Um, for um, you know, women dying during pregnancy um, and, and, and childbirth, way down. Um, and so we are making massive strides mm-hmm. in, in this in this um, mission, but obviously we have a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, like, do you think it's the 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 big like question that just kind of overshadows is that yeah. possible to end world? I think it is. I, I you know I I think um, from a local level, you're always going to have the I think some that you know are 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 the poor that mm-hmm. um, the underprivileged. I think. Um, but from a, from a macro level, um, I do think it's possible yeah. because, um, 
we, the world doesn't lack the resources. Um, it lacks the proper distribution of yeah. those resources. Um, an adequate distribution for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I sound like Bernie Sanders talking right now, but yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> you know, I think we, we have enough. It's not that we don't have enough. Um, it's that, you know, those ration, it's not rationed properly. And, um, you know, I, I heard, I think it was maybe my pastor say several times, um, you know, the world doesn't, is not, is not starving from, from the food that's on our plate, it's starving from the food that we throw away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. There's, um, you know, I think there's, there's so much excess, yeah. so much waste. So, I mean, go to Carabas and order a plate. For oh yourself. my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I don't order, if I ever got to eat, I don't ever order a plate for myself anymore. Okay. Cause like, like yeah. you said, like half of it will be gone. I can't physically finish it. Portions, so it's like, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Unreal. Like, what do you suspect is one of the biggest hurdles or some of the biggest hurdles that are kind of like keeping us from like seeing that? Or or maybe better question is like, what are the hurdles we have to jump to make that happen? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, what's standing in the way? I mean, you said distribution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, I think education is probably our greatest hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, um, Female equality, quite honestly, is one of our greatest um, hurdles. Uh, we've got to educate and um, and empower um, female voices. Um, and I'm, I'm really talking about the developing world. You know, mm-hmm. it needs to happen in the in the developed world as well. But um, in the majority world, um, I, I am I am of the belief that the education and empowerment of girls, of young girls and youth. Um, could eradicate extreme poverty in the Eastern Hemisphere. Mm. Um, Is it, do you think it's because they have um, a more compassionate heart and the ability to speak on behalf of that? Not or? necessarily. I mean, I th- in some instances, that's true. I think you know, there's there's a there's a maternal I think sometimes instinct there that that um, that does kick in. But I, I think um, uh, we've just seen over and over in the majority world um, when when females are given the opportunity to be educated. Um, when they're given the opportunity to lead, um, they uh, overwhelmingly um, uh, are some of the most effective leaders we have. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, in many areas of the world, their voices are oppressed. Um, they are not educated. Um, and um, it, it sets communities back um, for generations mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, and it's proven time and time again that, that female empowerment um, in these in these different parts of the world will absolutely revolutionize communities yeah. for the better. Wow. Um, and I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not even a hidden statistic. It is a, it is a flat out fact. Yeah. Um, and so, um, that's interesting. Cause that's not one of the, like, I guess that's probably not one of the most obvious things that people would have, would have go, no. yeah, that needs to happen. Yeah. We need to ship more food or we yeah, need yeah. to do. Yeah. No, it's, it's really not. I mean, you know, uh, in many of these areas, you know, we, we talk about things like drought and, and famine and things like that. And so a lot of instances, those types of things are needed, the kind of the daily life necessities. But in many parts of the majority world, and most of the majority world, I would say, um, they, they have access. Um, there are the resources that are needed if, they are, if they're provided with the right um, education. So like, for instance, within agriculture, the right irrigation techniques or things like that that mm-hmm. will help them... Uh, either harvest greater crops or crops more often or whatever that looks like. Um, there is, you know, there are all sorts of types of, of, of just smart, 
strategic um, development opportunities that they can take advantage of, um, but they have to be educated in it. Um, but really, uh, overwhelmingly, um, to me, it's um, it's the empowerment empowerment of women. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Um, what like what parts of the world do you feel like are really still lagging behind in regards to the development and progress? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, I know it's a loaded question. There's probably so much. Yeah, you know, I think. Um, you know, you, you see corruption in government so often in certain parts of the world, um, you know, in several African countries, and um, and and, and um, obviously that's a that's a huge hurdle. Yeah. Um, and where uh, talk about distribution, you know, that's a, that's a there's a major issue. There. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think uh, like when you say that, like just for audience sake, like. Are you talking about like when it gets over there, how it doesn't actually make it to where it's supposed to go and helping? Or, or even or even the commodities that they do have mm-hmm. and they're able to to export or things like that. Where does that revenue go? Yeah. It typically goes, you know, in some of these instances, it goes to the to the, the leaders yeah. and and um, those that are a lot of times doing a lot of the work are left with nothing. Right. And um, and so you know those types of things have to be fixed. Um, and I don't know that there's a that's, that's a very complex um, issue oh to gosh. tackle. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge um, system. Yeah, yeah, it's, of elements that have to be like rigged and yeah. tweaked and and a lot of it removed. comes through education and, yeah. and, and, and you know it, it'll be generational. The change it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens through through the education and, and literally the kind of restructuring of cultural systems and norms. Um, and so. Yeah, it is. It's it's a it's a it's it's a long waltz, yeah. as my uh, as the president of Museum of the Bible would say, Kerry Summers. He always says, you know, this is a long waltz we're on. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you said uh, a few minutes ago about like things you've been frustrated about, like how we NGOs maybe have have hurt more than helped. Yeah. Like what 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 are I, I want to be careful. Like when I ask you, like I want to be careful because I don't want to ask you to throw like anybody. Oh no, I wouldn't say any organizations. Yeah, like <laughs> but I mean, you do have a firsthand. You know, and nobody's perfect. So sure. What, what do you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think the first thing to say is that um, intentions are usually amazing, mm-hmm. right? Um, people that go into this that line of work, um, they're super well intentioned, and they usually have big hearts to help. Um, Unfortunately, I think we have just off the coast of Florida, a country called Haiti, which is a great example of, um, of where development can really go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think there is a, um, there is a coming alongside people and empowering them to change their, their circumstances, their environment, their world. Um, or there is a... Um, you know, kind of, it's like the age-old way of handing things out to people. Right. Um, and I think there is a time and a place, um, definitely for handouts. Uh, you know, I remember just after the earthquake in Haiti, um, you know, driving along and, and, and seeing trucks handing out big bags of rice and things like that. And those those were necessities of life. Absolutely. Those people needed to make it through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a long-term strategy, um we're not talking about a massive disaster like that. We're talking about um, really long-term development strategy. Um, the, typically, that is not the best way to, to right. go about um, caring for people. And so um, the, the best way to care for people is to empower them to change their environment, mm-hmm. to change, empower, empower them and walk alongside them to change their circumstance. 
Um, it's not doing it for them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, I, I think about from just a real practical sense of people here in the States, you know, the, the kid that turns 16, his dad buys him the brand new car. Um, you know, he constantly has McDonald's bags in the floorboard yeah. and French fries everywhere and greasy, you know, stuff all on the inside of it. Whereas the kid that, that worked his tail off, you know, bagging groceries at Publix right. and goes out and buys the $4,000, you know, whatever that he can get to yeah, <laughs> and make it along. But he, he's out every Saturday washing detailing the inside and outside of that car yeah. because there's pride it. there yeah. and there's... Um, you know, he worked hard for that. The, 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 that can be applied. That same. That's a, that's a human sentiment, mm -hmm. um, and that can be applied across the board for the most part. Um, in in this idea of development and empowering people to to help them change their circumstances, to help them have pride. You know, um, I used to say, "Give them dignity," and I had a friend of mine that stopped me at Feed the Children, and he said, "You're not giving them anything." They have dignity. You're helping them maintain it, yeah. and I loved that. Yeah. He, he he appropriately corrected me, um, and it's true. They have dignity. We're not we're not changing anything. We're we're um, you know we're not providing anything for them. What we're doing is we're coming alongside and helping them maintain that dignity. Yeah. Um, and I think when you when you run into a place <clears throat> as the savior, and you start trying to build all this stuff and do all these things, um, I just feel like it can do a lot more harm than good. I think. You know, one of the differences can be, uh, you know, providing clean water wells. You know, obviously those, they need help and then those things being dug. But I think the follow-up to that is training people to take care of those systems, yeah. um, to providing work for them to help them, you know, uh, maintain them and, and, up, and take care of the upkeep. So there's, there's definitely, um, you know, there's, uh, there, development can go wrong. You can go very, very wrong. Yeah. And you can end up doing a lot more damage than good. Well, I mean, because you're dealing with, you know, you know, you're dealing with mindsets. These people are raised in a defeated atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's like they have no hope, you know yeah. what I mean? And so, yeah. like, you're not only talking about helping them maintain dignity, you're helping them, like, reshape their thinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, and seeing that there's a better life or there's a better way. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, yeah. if you're America, that only happens in America, you know? I mean... Yeah. Is that is that hard? Like, have you seen that as like a, a, a hurdle? Or yeah, I, mean, it's more hard. I think you know. I think one of the most amazing things, and I definitely, I think it varies in different parts of the world where that you're in. But uh, one of the things I've seen is that if you give them a, a little glimmer of hope, mm -hmm. it, it they they will run with it. Yeah. Um, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it's like if they can if they can feel like. Um, they might be able to dream yeah. like and have some dreams and hopes and aspirations. Like this might be possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They'll run with it. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really kind of in my mind. My mind immediately goes to different parts of Africa that I've been in where, um, you know, if, if you provide them um, that little glimmer, a little, um, you know, an inkling of hope, um, they will absolutely take the bull by the horns yeah. and they will run with it. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, and, and again, going back to that, the female empowerment, I think it's especially true uh, with females in, in the developing world. Yeah. Um, they are uh, tenacious. Mm -hmm. so. That's great. Um, so, I, like, I want to ask you about uh, a few things. Like, um, going back to that book, that just he shared so much. It completely. I, ha I have this sort of in the back of my head one day, wanting to do like a nonprofit thing. Hmm. Um, I always think about the whole world hunger thing and all that stuff, but it's like there's so many people that, I mean, as I've researched, 
besides the ones that are like the the stars like World Vision or One and mm-hmm. Charity Water and those guys like there's also like millions of us yeah like I um fam- depression runs heavy in my mm-hmm. my family and, and I've noticed it runs heavy in just people in general you yeah. know like, yeah. and like finding ways to like help do something about that because like mm-hmm. the like just even the mental health thing like uh, uh, yeah. and um government funding is just continues to get like turned away you know like there's yeah. nothing there for it. and anyway but that's so I, get, I got really interested in, in NGOs started reading a lot of books and stuff but the one, one of the things he talks about is uh, is keeping the investors happy and hmm. like and it kind of made you realize the dirty side of it's, maybe it's not dirty but it feels dirty like hmm. the business you hmm. know and I, it's almost like I hate capitalism sometimes yeah. I hate money <laughs> you know what I mean because it's like you love it it's a necessary evil. Yeah. It's yeah, but yeah. it's still at the same time. It's like, you know, I think about like, you know, granted, I have been involved in child sponsorship and stuff, but I always had this frustration in the back of my head of like, you know, when you give, when you pay thirty two dollars a month, you're helping someone live on a dollar a day and all that stuff, and and it's like, then you look at the lofty salaries of the people that are in charge or people that are speaking or the band deals that artists mm-hmm. and stuff get, and you go. Well, is that a marketing scheme? Right. You know, where you're right. saying it's like giving a dollar a day, but really what you're doing is funding the nonprofit so that they can, right. you know, empower, like you're saying. Sure. Um, like, does that stuff ever like screw with your head, or do you? Or have you been so involved where like you see like, okay, no, it's it's work that works. Yeah, I think it's it's a. Unfortunately, what's ended up happening, I think, and I was just having this conversation yesterday with somebody, is that nonprofits started to be, like charities started to be judged based on their overhead. Mm-hmm. And that is a really bad way yeah. to, um, to, to figure out the effectiveness of a charity's right. work, yeah. right? Um, one of my friends, Scott Harrison, has a brilliant um, uh, philosophy and, and kind of a, a strategy in that, in that he basically went out and found a certain segment of donors that, that fund all their of salaries. his overhead. Yeah, yeah. their salaries, the building, the <laughs> lights, the, you know, to pay the electric bill, all that stuff. And, and, and so they, these, this group of people um, basically fund all that. So that way everybody else in the mainstream public that give to Charity Water, um, every bit of it goes directly to the cause, mm-hmm. you know, to the field. And so, um, that's, and that's a beautiful model. And, and so, um, and, and, and saying that, I think there's a, Unfortunately, he even had to kind of set up that system because there is this perception in people's minds that they, they're judging the, the effectiveness of a charity's work based on that charity's overhead. And I think that's a, that's a really bad way mm-hmm. to do that. I've seen some really awful work mm-hmm. being done by charities with really low overhead. Yeah. And I've seen some really incredible work by charities that have a little bit larger overhead. Now, right. I, we, we need to be in reason here. You know, um, and and I think that's that's a, that's a given um, that it can't be ridiculous. But at the same time, I think, um, and, and then also you start getting into what is included in that overhead. Are they talking about um, salaries in the field of that staff? Is that included in the overhead right. um, that are going out and working with these kids on a daily basis and training them and educating them and that sort of thing? Like, is that included in the overhead and how does it all work? So there's there's so it. The systems are so complex in that overhead question um, and how they allot that and what's what's taken into account there that I think that's a, um, a much better way uh, to judge a charity is on their progress. Yeah. Um, 
and is saying, is your philosophy working? Mm. Um, you know, um, I think for, for many people, it's this idea of, um, you know, I'm get, if I sponsor a child, I'm giving this money, and I want every dollar of that money to go to that one particular child every single month, um, which is awesome. Like for some, for some charities that works, that's great. For some charities, they take that money and they use it to develop that child's community. Yeah. So rather than just the child benefiting, maybe the, the mom and dad get to drink from that clean water well as well. Right. So, um, and um, you know, the, the entire community benefits from those irrigation techniques and the agricultural training that the, the, the community's getting or the livestock programs that are being implemented in those communities. Everybody's benefiting yeah. from them. And so, um, you know, I think we do, as Americans, we have, we have savior complex, right? We wanna, like, that's my child, I'm gonna save that kid. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, and I think that, that just comes from, from an ego. Yeah. You know, I think that comes from, um, but I, I think we find ch- charities, we investigate charities, we should do our due diligence to, to really do research on every charity that we ever choose to give to. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important. Um, and, and then go with one. And at some point there has to be a level of trust mm-hmm. there that you're trusting the charity to do what they say they're doing. And then you, you judge them on their progress. Yeah. Um, I want to see what's happened. You know I mean? I, there were times at world vision where I was sponsoring a child or food for the hungry where I was sponsoring a child and I'd get a note from, from that child that says, Hey, good news. You know, we no longer need your sponsorship anymore because our, our community just graduated the, the, the program, you yeah. know, which meant that in, in some way that community had now become self-sufficient right. apart from World Vision or Food for the Hungry's help, yeah. um, which should be celebrated, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a, there's a, there's a beautiful part of that. And then there's, I see the other side too of, um, you know, caring for that one child and you pour enough into that one child where that child then turns and impacts that community mm-hmm. for the good, right? yeah. for the better. So I think there's different strategies. There's different ways to, to approach poverty. Um, you know, I do think some are more, fe- more effective than others. Uh, maybe uh, some are a little bit more efficient as far as how quickly they can turn around a community and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, we're all needed. And, and no, so. I love that. Kind of going back to the idea of... Um, working the nonprofits out of business kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The book, 40, 40 Chances. Mm-hmm. I'm going to this I need to read this book. You, you would love it. You would love it. It's actually really great. Um, but I just, I, was, I actually pulled it out I was looking through it the other day and I was like, these would be great questions to ask Ben. But um, he talks about keeping the investors mm. happy. Mm. And so like uh, the tsunami that happened, I say a few years ago, but it was several years ago overseas and um and then he said several you know like ngos come in and they kind of help and and rather than do the most effective work that that they can they do work like really fast and then snap pictures so then they can post on their websites like look what we just did look what your money just did and keeping investors happy he was but he was saying like the things that were built were like houses after the tsunami and stuff that didn't last for a year or two. You know what I mean? And it's yeah, like there, there's, stuff like that. There's definitely a balance of, you know, because there's, the, the power is in the narrative. The power mm-hmm. is in the story, right? So the power is in the story that you tell. It's what brings in the money um, to help pay for these things. Right. And if you were to tell the story of, this is going to be a long haul, we're going to work every day to educate and do this, you know, we're going to have, 
five different groups that we're going to sit down with every day. That's just, it's not very sexy. Yeah. yeah. And so you're in a, when you work in the development space, even within fundraising in itself, I think, um, you got to sell it. You do. You, you have to, there's got to be a greater narrative that, um, that doesn't get into your daily minutia. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and it is, it is a, it's a fine line and a, and a balance that organizations need to keep of, of, you know, showing kind of what's sexy to appease those that are giving them money and to keep the money rolling in and actually doing work that's quality. Yeah. Um, and so, and we know, and we know it's going to be long lasting. Um, Which is again, like the same, like, I think your point of investigating and yes. making sure that yeah. what you're investing in is, is worthy. And, and I think people a lot of times people that give don't want to do the homework right unfortunately you know i think there's um and, and there's been there's been kind of an onus put on the the charities or the organizations to actually do the education mm-hmm. um and um you know, i remember when i first you know food for the hungry we were really ramping up child sponsorship child sponsorship was growing at a really rapid pace mm-hmm. and um and my goal originally you know, there's a whole process of cultivation with every donor. Um, and my goal originally was let's educate the donors on what their money is actually doing. Yeah. Right. So because Food for the Hungry works um, within development projects, right? They're, right. they're funding kind of the overarching um, goals of the community rather than the actual specific child. And um, which is an incredibly effective way to work like we were talking about. And so my goal was, okay, let's do this. You know, we know that we don't have... At a concert, let's say, when people are giving a child sponsorship appeal, we don't have time to explain the entire narrative of how yeah. child sponsorship works. But what we can do is once we get them in the door, then let's let's educate them. Yeah. Let's let's take this process of the next year to two years and really educate them. And our attrition rates were really high mm-hmm. because what we found out is people don't really want to know. They don't really care. Yeah. Like they don't want to be educated. They want to know what that child is doing today. They want to know did they get better grades this semester this yeah grading period because um, they got more food in their belly. Well, do you also think it's ego, like you said? Like the whole like, yeah. hey, like I've got these two kids on my my, uh, I'm saving my refrigerator. Them. They're my kids. When you come in the house, you see like those two kids, I'm sponsoring yeah. them this year. Like, do you think there's a lot of that too? Which Absolutely. is why they don't want to know? And it's one of the reasons why you hear sponsorship so often referred to as adoption. Yeah. People say, I adopted a kid last night at the Michael W. Smith concert. Yeah. Well, you didn't adopt a kid. You, okay. Well, uh, where's he at? You, yeah, you, you <laughs> sponsored a child. But it, it's, it is that, it's that mindset. It's this mentality of, um, no, that's, that's my, that's my child. Yeah. And, you know, and I think there's, the, the, again, that's well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. Like there's some beauty in that of like, I want to save this kid because mm-hmm. there is something in my core DNA, that I, what I would call is 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 the divine part of your being. That when when God created us in His image, it's at the centerpiece of us to, as this idea of compassion and care. Yeah. And um, and so you know you have this 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 want and this need to help, and 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 that becomes kind of the next step is save. You know, it's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that that child has, you know, has everything they need, which is actually great at the heart of it, you know? Um, And then, but I think the the best way to kind of tell that narrative and tell that story as from a charity standpoint, um, and that's, that's the difficult part is you have to appeal to that idea of, 
Uh, and that's why child sponsorship is so effective. Um, like, if think about it, if, if we were to take out the child sponsorship component, we were to go city to city asking people to give money monthly to a project that was going to help do agricultural training and this type of thing for these communities all around the world. Well, it's just not as appealing. Yeah. You put one the one-to-one, the child, the face on that packet, now all of a sudden that becomes real, it becomes a story, and that becomes compelling. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to me, that 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 child, like for organizations like World Vision or Food with Hungry, that work in that manner, that child is is an incredible window into the, it's a vista into the life of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, that child provides a voice for that community to you as a donor, um, you know, to to kind of see into the life of that of that community and the progress of the community and yeah. the work of the organization. Uh, I want to I want to read off your two blog website. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> You said, I want to pursue justice. I love this. I want to pursue justice and stand in the gap for the oppressed. I do, but some days the deal is just too good on that shirt for me to worry about where it came from or who made it, Hmm. which is just like a slap in the face when I heard that. (laughs) I know my purchases, actions, and greed have consequences, but sometimes I just don't care enough. And what you're talking about is like, this is the the thing you're, you're talking about the, uh, the article you read on Facebook. Yeah. about how like yeah well, it was just it was like I think that's from this has been a few years ago since I wrote, wrote that but I think it, it came it was born out of this idea uh, I, I would start skimming through like my friends Facebook posts and different Facebook posts and people and seeing people kind of live these it, it, it's like your online life right it's just so perfect yeah. right and oh, dude, every, every time I talk to somebody because I've gotten more like one I've gotten where like I've I'm over that. I mean, once you've been around social media for so long, you realize how flaky mm-hmm. it can be. And so like, I want everything that I say to be just positive. Right. Whether it be something for somebody else or it just be, and like sometimes people will be like, man, you got a lot happening. And I'm like, do I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. It's, no, it's true. I think, and that's, that's where this, that post was born. I think it was watching this and then realizing, and I, I got off Facebook a while back. Um, my wife been, did too. I think it's a smart move. Yeah, I think it's been about a year ago now. I, and and the reason why I did it was because I realized when I when I would click out of Facebook for one, I, honestly, I didn't have enough time to 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 do it to deal with it. But when I click off of Facebook, I never once felt better. Mm-hmm. Never once yeah. did I ex, exit out of Facebook and feel better about myself, mm-hmm. my family, anything. I always felt either angry at a post I just read that I completely disagreed with. Um, maybe some resentment, some envy, um, that life that somebody's living or, you know, whatever it is. I never once clicked out and felt like, oh, I feel so much better than I was on Facebook today. And, um, you know, I I love the idea of connecting to old friends and people I haven't talked to in years and that, that whole idea of, of kind of providing this, this network and this ability to reach people that I hadn't talked to in a long time. It was great, but then it just turned into this. Like, this is not good for me. Yeah. You know, it's not healthy. And, and there's so, a reason why I haven't talked to these people in a long time. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. totally. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, I think this post is just was, was my attempt at honesty of saying, um, you know, I, uh, and I, I think people come up to me, you know, have come to me several, several times the last several years and just said, gosh, you know, how exciting is it that, you know, you seem like careers, you know, you just kind of taken off from one thing to another and done some pretty cool stuff and um, you know Melissa's done a lot of cool stuff and um, 
our kids are healthy and, you know, in, in a way, I think for people, the perception is like, oh, it's just this thriving Perfect. family. Yeah. yeah. And like, and, 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 and we are, and I'm thankful in a lot of ways that, that our, my kids are healthy and, you know, we have, we have amazing, we live, we live very uh, amazing lives, I feel. But at the same time, my gosh, I deal with all the same stuff and we all deal with all the same mm. stuff and yeah. at the root of it all, um, you know, um, you know, and that even though the line about the t-shirts, you know, I think, um, I, Melissa and I have been really, very challenged over the years, um, about where our stuff comes from mm. because I, you know, when you work in the developing world for long enough, you start to realize, oh my gosh, um, there's no telling what kind of situation or environment these, this shirt was made in, right. these jeans were made in. So it starts to have impact on your buying. And then some days you, you don't want to care about it all. You don't want to, mm. you know, it's like, man, that's. I think the shirt's cool and I just want it. You yeah. know, I don't want to think about where it came from. Or, um, I think that's why that hit me um, like it did because knowing you or, you know, spending the little time I've spent with you, like I know how serious you take the, the development stuff. Mm -hmm. So to hear you say that, it's just like, I mean, he's a normal guy. And, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, and that's part of the reason why I wrote it. It's like, it's for people to kind of get the perspective of, you know, we're all trying to do our best, you yeah. know, for the most part, I think, and I'm trying to do my best and, and, but man, I fall short of that mark so often. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's a line there about my kids and trying to look them in the eyes and, um, you're checking football stats and stuff. Right. Like I'm looking on my phone and checking football stats, checking work emails or whatever it is where I, I need to be, I, I need to be looking in their eyes and, 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 you know, I, I, I think, Self-worth is such a huge issue mm -hmm. with our culture. Um, and when my kids are trying to talk to me and I'm staring at a phone instead of them, I'm telling them something about their self-worth. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I, I'm uh, you know, I think Sleeping at Last, the, one of my favorite, one of my favorite bands, um, they have a song, he, he wrote a song called um, Sun. And it talks about the fingerprints that you, like w when you look through a microscope on your children, like the fingerprints that you, of the, how you're molding them and shaping them yeah. into who they are going to be. Wow. Um, and it's a uh, great picture. yeah, and it's, it's like every, you realize everything you do and every action you take has consequences because on the life of your child, because they are following your actions so much more than they're following your words. Yeah. And so regardless of what comes out of my mouth, it's, it's what I do every day that, that shapes them. Yeah. So I love that. You know, like, uh, I have to. I have notes for people who can't see it. Like, I, otherwise, we're screwed. So, <laughs> so I have to keep myself on track. But like, you know, very few people have the rare opportunity to devote their work and their life to like to work that like you have with the developing mm -hmm. country. Something very raw. Something very real. And so, what uh, what's been the most impressionable thing that mm -hmm. you've uh, learned or experienced being involved with World Vision for the Hungry Feed the Children? Oh gosh, there's. I I, I feel like. I probably could write a book on some of the most um, impactful moments that I've had, I think, in, especially in the field. Um, I think one instance that, that probably comes to mind first is um, I, was in, uh, I was in Kenya um, on a trip and um, I was in a little hut with um, a young mother. Her husband had left. Um, uh, about seven or eight months, I think, before we actually were there, uh, and a young mother was trying to care for her um, 
her three children. She had um, HIV, uh, AIDS, and so uh, she was pretty sick. And um, on the floor there of this dusty hut uh, was a little 14 or 15 month old little boy who um, was clearly undernourished. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you work in development long enough, you learn, you, you find, you see signs of malnourishment, um, malnourished children very easily. There's things that are very prevalent to you. And this little boy had all of them, um, all of those signs, symptoms. Um, and he was crawling around on his hands and knees, which, you know, you think at that age, some kids are usually kind of up, at least somewhat walking. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so he's kind of crawling around and dust all over his hands and knees and dirt on his face. And he looked up at me and Hutch at that time was about 14 or 15 months old. Mm-hmm. This little boy looked up at me and I literally just saw Hutch look mm-hmm. up at me. And um, I just thought, huh. Everything became real and the entire world became a level playing ground, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that little boy was just like my little boy, except for my little boy somehow won the cosmic lottery by being born here. Yeah. And, um, and he has food. My, you know, my, my son Hutch has food every day to eat. Mm. He has clean water today, every drink today, you know, every day to drink. And, uh, and, and this little boy somehow was born in this environment where, um, just like my son wanted to be held, wanted to be loved, wanted to be nurtured and fed. Um, and it was born into, born into an environment where that wasn't practical. It wasn't, um, it wasn't reality. And so, um, it's, it was, that was very early on in my career. Um, and, uh, there and so it was one of those things I think for me that was eye-opening in a way that kind of will forever stick with me in that um, you know for all of humanity Mm -hmm. that we are um, we all long for the same things and um, at the heart of us all and that again I think that comes from from a DNA that um, that's divine yeah it's it's I mean the big mystery is like, why, <laughs> you know, like why, why is it that my son gets the glorious life, you know, compared to this? I mean, yeah. why does this kid not get it? You know, I mean, I mean, for all we know, it was perfect in the beginning, and it's just because poor decisions throughout their eternity or whatever or whatever. I mean, God only knows, but like, it is very humbling and yeah, it does it yeah, and e- even like trying to trying to figure out why. To me, it's like, man, but it still is, yeah, you know, and, and this idea of, um, yeah, and so I, and honestly, even those types of instances and things sent me on faith journeys of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of wrestling and, and trying to, you know, figure out like a, this idea of a God, uh, if, if God can intervene, but he won't. Or can he not? Yeah. And, you know, it's 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 you know it's one of those those kind of age old questions that we all wrestle with. But um, of, of where is the loving God in the face of of, of suffering? But um, yeah. So so you spent 
almost 10 years, or, or what, 10 years between World Vision feed? Uh, it was about 12 years between um, World Vision, Food for the Hungry, and Feed the Children. Okay. <laughs> like, have you, um, because obviously the museum is yeah. is a left turn from Yeah, from yeah, a complete departure. Years. Yeah. Like, have you found that you needed like a mental, emotional break? You know, I, I, I do, um, I, and I have. I, um, and, and, but, but to be quite frank, I wrestled with the idea of <clears throat> leaving um, this huge passion of, of, um, of seeing kids in the majority world um, have food to eat and clean mm-hmm. water to drink and these types of things um, to go and build a building in the United States, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> But it, it's, it was really kind of um, not leaving one passion, but, but a departure from one passion into the passion of another, which mm-hmm. is my, I have a huge passion for the Bible, a huge passion for theology. Um, you, can, you can see my, my library from where you're sitting right now, Chris. Those books are, are all uh, my search and my... my uh, I thought I had a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> my, we don't have shelf room for them all. So, um, but my journey into trying to... Um, yeah, to, to explore faith and explore God and how his and his interaction with us, um, but uh, and and so really it was it was kind of a but I did ha- I did have to think really long and hard on this idea of taking this departure. But my hope is this that as people engage, um, you know, some some of the most profound scriptures to me are are, are scriptures of <clears throat> of a um, a God that commands us to care for the poor, mm-hmm. a God that. Um, says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Um, and so I think for me, the, the, the parts of scripture that stick out the most, um, you know, we just celebrated Easter and people, we celebrate this resurrection and, and I celebrate the resurrection too. I think that's great. But I think more impressive to me is a God who would die mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, than a God who would rise again. I think a God who rises again, sure, is God. Of course, yeah. he would rise again. Yeah. Um, I think a God that would suffer alongside of us, like a God that would, um, uh, you know, would choose to to enter into that kind of suffering and that um, that cries with us when we cry, mm. um, <clears throat> that isn't so removed from us. I think that's. That's the beauty of of, um, of of the Easter story for me, and um, so as I look at Scripture, and I look at this this con- this museum being built for people to come and engage the Scripture, um, you know, I have my own wishes and hopes for people as they walk away of what they're compelled by, and that's compelled to love our enemies as we love ourselves, mm-hmm. and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and um, and uh, you know, I think there's a um, there's a common thread throughout scripture um, that drives us to be better um, if it's if it's viewed through the proper lens. I think scripture has been misused in many occasions, yeah. um, unfortunately. Um, and actually, the museum is going to shed some light on that too. Yeah. So we're going to have you know we're going to talk about crusades and inquisitions and um, and so and, and you know I think even the racial divide um, throughout the centuries, you know, a lot of times the Bible was used uh, to. Uh, for, for defense of slavery and things yeah. like that. And, um, and so I think when it's viewed th- through a, the correct lens, it really, it really pushes us to be better human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this idea of loving our enemy um, 
and this, uh, this idea of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, there's a self-implied, you have to love yourself too. And we don't yeah. do a good job of that either. So, um, so yeah, there, there's, uh, I, um, to answer your, go back to answer your question. There definitely is a huge, um, it was a huge departure for me in, in one sense. Um, uh, but in this, in really in the same mold of my hope is that this will excite people, um, create and stir compassion and and um and hopefully a a, a passion yeah. um, for people to change the world yeah. for the better and so um if the impact can be that great um on people like you know as the, the bible's impact on on me and my life um then i think you know it, it's gonna it's gonna make massive strides yeah. in helping shape and change the culture in the world yeah that's great so it's like the the museum could potentially be the catalyst to plant seeds for for people to go out and do the work that you've been involved in for the last 12 years exactly how is your perspe- per- perception or perspective on um, justice change since you started mm. uh, with world vision oh, how's gosh. it grown yeah I mean I, you know it's it's uh, it, I think it's completely different and, and just from a from an education standpoint mm-hmm. you know not even feeling like it's hard for me to even imagine back to my first days at World Vision now um, and I was kind of like cool man yeah I'll take the job yeah I get to help people <laughs> this is awesome <laughs> and then you realize all the complexities in that of helping people and um, and um, and really um yeah, trying to, trying to weed through what is good and what is, um, what is just mm-hmm. like what what really is just, um, and and it's that that's really bled over into all my different parts of my life. I mean, in all different areas of um, different social justice issues and things, and um, and how it's kind of played out, and um, and really feeling like, um, man. I, I really, this is like a really morbid thought, but what is my funeral going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, like what will I have done? Well, what impressions will I have made? How will I leave my mark, um, on the people around me and on the world? Um, uh, because we have, I have the ability and the access to, to make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And so am I taking advantage of that? I want to say that um, I, for some reason the book How to Win Friends and Influence People hmm. is the book where, he talks, where he talks about um, the funeral. Is, mm-hmm. it, is, that, is it that book? Where yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Where he talked about your funeral and, and imagining what people would say and mm-hmm. whatever you want them to say, build that sort of we'll life. Live that, uh, live that legacy, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, that, that book, um, I just, I've read it twice and I actually just did the, because I, I don't have time to read the whole thing, I did this, like the, the Cliff Note version last month and it's it's like next to the bible one of the most amazing books incredible ever because it's about service it almost is like everything that you learn about the bible in a more practical way Mm -hmm. when when it comes to love justice or helping people like he's basically saying the same thing you know it's more more of a business sort of lofty kind of way totally well and i think it's it's huge in areas of like you know i've been managing people now for the last seven years or so um, and, and I, I just said the wrong thing. You know, you, you, um, you, you manage assets, you manage budgets, you manage, um, 
kind of the daily operations, mm-hmm. but you lead people, yeah. right? So, um, and that's that, that book to me is, is, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a phenomenal um, educational piece that every everybody that's involved in, probably, I mean, everybody should read, I think. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. I keep notes from it in, in my phone and not like literally when I'm on the plane sometimes I'll just pull out my notes that I took from that book and just flip through them and read them, you know, yeah. just to make sure I'm staying on track. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I think that's great about the idea of, you know, I mean, I think about, just thinking about right now how far off track I am, like, what do you want people to say? Like when you're dead, like, will they be like, you know, the one thing I don't want people to say about me which I've kind of, um, I really struggle with this. It's like, I don't want him to go, and he was a really great guitar player. You're like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, or he, he really could write a song or something like that. It's just like, do I really care about music so mm-hmm. much so that that's what I want people to say? And mm-hmm. will they have another, is there any other options there for them to choose from? Right, right. You know, like, no. like and that, that really haunts me. Like, that, that bugs me. Um, but I mean, I mean, quite honestly, Ben, I mean, like, watching you from a distance and listening to you, like, like, um, I think that's why I wanted to sit down with you is like, I'm just, I've always been impressed by like how intentional and how serious you take, um, helping people. And, um, and it didn't feel like, it felt like a burden to you more than just a job that you were doing, Mm -hmm. you know, um, which I appreciated. So I don't think you have much to worry about. What people (laughs) (laughs) Not that I want you to die anytime soon, but no. And I, you know, you, you hit, you hit on something earlier you hinted at something earlier of did you need a break like being in development for a long time and man I I I think you can when I first started at World Vision the first few years there I I really dealt with some deep dark stuff because I was I was taking so much of it on my shoulders Mm. and trying to um, feel like I'm the one that needed to fix the world like I, I, I need to change the world. I need to do it tonight, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so at some point in that journey, you have to come to the realization that you, you can't do it all. Um, and I had a friend actually that, that, that gave me a prayer, um, by a, a guy named Oscar Romero Romero. Um, and I actually, my wife was so sweet. She went and had the prayer. Actually, she commissioned a lady to paint the prayer for mm-hmm. me. Um, and it hung in my office, it's leaning up in there in the office, but it hung in my office for a very, very long time. Um, and it's just this idea that, um, you know, we are, we are ministers, we're not messiahs. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we are, we're workers, we're not master builders. Um, uh, we are prophets of a future, not our own. You know, it's like, we can only do our work and we're just a, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean for the greater work that has to be done. But we are that drop. Mm-hmm. so um, so yeah beautiful love that I mean, you're and you're completely immersed in museum now like you yeah f- oh yeah very very full time uh, <laughs> very very full time <laughs> um, I don't know that I worked this many hours um, ever in my life uh, and, but uh, but it's it's a, it's a fun ride um, it, it's an incredible project and um, one that I'm I'm honored to be a part of yeah you know I want to this before we kind of wrap up. I want to ask you about your um, when you know uh, when we were visiting Thompson Station Church as we were coming in. You and Melissa were leaving, mm-hmm. and then you shared with me out in the lobby how like you really were struggling with faith and mm-hmm. dealing with some crap, and how Stan at Grace was Grace really instrumental in helping you. And um, I'd love for you to like. 
to just kind of share yeah. that, like what, what that, that's been. Because you're like, even in your blog, uh, you, you uh, talk about how like it's a, it's, a, it's a UFC fight, you know, your faith is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I've always like, even at a younger age, I, I, I'm full of questions, mm-hmm. right? So I, and I've, I have a hard time taking things at face value. I really want to dive in. And um, I guess probably some skepticism and maybe even in my current age, cynicism. <laughs> Um, has crept in, but, um, you know, faith for me, it it is, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a really difficult journey. Um, I I want, I want it, I want it to be simple. Mm. I want it to be black and white. I want it to be easy, but it's never been that way for me. Um, and and maybe a younger, younger age potentially was, but as the, um, you know, definitely in college, it became just a wrestling match. Mm. And, um, and as I got out of college, I, I really started to it was like the more I read, the less I knew, yeah. um, and which just frustrated me. And I and I wanted answers, you know. I wanted um, I wanted to figure it all out. And you know, I think um, Richard Rohr once or recently said, um, mysticism will will either be one of the centerpieces of, of Christianity as it moves forward, or Christianity will really suffer. Mm. And um, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, I have had to come to peace with so much that I just don't know. Yeah. Um, in what used to be, um, you know, what I see in people and that still is for so many people, this kind of easy black and white, you know, it's, um, belief. I just have not been able to, to embrace. Um, mm. I, I find holes in so many elements of it. And, um, and so for me, um, this idea of who God is, um, what, what is his nature? Because to me, that's so incredibly important when I say I love something like now worship something and love something are different things for me. Could I worship something out of fear? Out of, like out of a fear? Sure. I guess I could do that. Um, but when you ask me, do I love that God? That's a different question to me mm-hmm. because that hints that touches on God's nature nature. And can I love a God that does this, this or this? Um, and so for me, a lot of it was a faith journey around the nature of God mm-hmm. and his interaction with humanity. Um, and so that's been a huge part of my journey. And, um, and even today, I mean, you know, I still, I, I still wrestle with it. I think the, the beautiful part for me was I went through a, a couple of years of my life. Where I couldn't even touch the Bible. Um, I mean, like, tell about that. Like, what is, what was, what was going on there? Like, yeah, I think it's, um, cause people, you know, you grew up Southern Baptist and I do too. And, and like in that realm, people would be like, how can you be so stupid? That's your problem. You didn't embrace the Bible. Right. And you didn't, and it's, everything has to, everything's so cookie cutter and it makes sense or used to be in the Southern Baptist realm. And it's like, God, but it. There's so much complexity. Yeah, yeah. There's it, um, and I, I think that, um, in in some ways, um, you know, I had a a buddy of mine who's really a mentor to me who said, sometimes Ben, in your life you've used the you've used the Bible, um, and you've it's like a trying to drive a car over a popsicle stick bridge. You know, you you've used it for all the wrong purposes and reasons, and and um, and so, and I, I think because some of it comes from that what I was taught growing up of like, this is your roadmap. Mm. Like, right. Everything that, every question you ever have about life can be answered in here. And, um, 
I, uh, yeah, so it, that, it didn't come that easily to me, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so I, I, there was a several year period where I read the Bible through front to back, um, every year. And, um, and there were just certain parts of, you know, scripture that I, um, I stumbled on that I had a really hard time reconciling, mm-hmm. you know, in numbers when God supposedly tells, um, you know, an army to go and kill every man, woman, and child. And, and the, you know, the, his followers come back and God says, did you, did you kill everybody like I commanded you? And it's, well, no, we left women and children. And God says, uh, we'll go back and kill all the women and children, except for the women that look good to you. You can keep them for yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounded a lot like Joseph Coney in the LRA, not like a loving creator. Yeah. And so, um, I, I started wrestling with, again, this idea of if God told them to do that, can I love that God? Like, yeah. can I love a God who, destroys who, evil. Destroys, like, who, who says, go commit genocide, <laughs> you know, like go, um, and, and children, you know? And, and so, and, and honestly, you know, I, I wrestle with that idea and that concept of, um, you know, of, of a creator who, who does that. And when, especially when we, you read further into the text and it says, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. Like I created you and I knew exactly where you were going to be born. And I know exactly where you had all these things. And so for an all knowing God to create and then to destroy and, and how that all plays out. And, um, and the complexity in that of, uh, of, you know, that God. And so again, it came back to me, could I worship that God? Could, because I'm completely afraid. Mm-hmm. Sure, I guess I could, you know. <laughs> if but he's going to kill me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, and at the end of the day, um, could I love that God? Honestly, no. Like, yeah. there's not... A, I, I don't... I don't. And then you kind of, as Scripture unfolds, you see, you hear some of the most uh, common words, in, especially in the kind of the New Testament of this, fear not, fear not. Don't have, don't, don't have fear. And I'm like, well, there's, there's, there's this kind of, you know, interesting, um, paradox going on of, um, this really kind of vengeful, um, God. And then this, this other God that we see somewhat through Jesus, you know, of, um, one that would even lay his life down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, again, I think that the, this idea of wrestling with the Bible, um, and, and I set it down for a couple of years, probably over two years where I never even touched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I was angry. I was, I was, um, and, and I felt like part of what I had been told as a child and, 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 and shown, uh, showed was, was a lie. And, um, and so I had to, I just had to wrestle with it. And so then I, I was able to kind of take a journey and, and I, and I view scripture through a different lens. Um, but in the last couple of years, I've been able to come back to it mm-hmm. and I kind of fallen in love with it in a new way, yeah. you know? And, um, and so, and, and I don't, I don't have the desire anymore to argue with people over it. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't feel like, um, you know, I think midrash is one thing if, you know, if we're going to meet and talk about scripture and how it, how it, um, how it pertains to us and our life and those things. I think that's, that's, that's a very beautiful and edifying thing. 
Um, I think um, this constant conflict over, um, you know, over over scripture and, and, and what how how I read it and how you read it, and um, I just feel like uh, in some instances, I, I don't know that it's not necessary. I just grown tired of it personally. Yeah. Um, and it's honestly one of the reasons why this Museum of the Bible project was so incredibly enticing to me and important to me in that it brings all these people together and mm-hmm. says, we understand you have convictions and we're not asking you to leave those aside. Convictions are very important. Steve Green, who's the, the, the you know, kind of the patron, lead patron, founder of this movement of Museum of the Bible, he and I see things very differently on certain aspects. Like, yeah. um, in the beautiful part of this project is that's okay Um, because the goal of this is to have everybody come in and just engage this book and let people explore and study and research and walk away with their own conclusions and um, you know just the fact that I have the opportunity to work at an organization like this um, it's just incredible and it speaks to the kind of the the testament of they're sticking to what they're sa- they say they're doing, right? That's right. the mission. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so I, it, it's definitely a journey, and it's definitely a daily, um, a daily journey. I, I, I'm I'm very much at peace with um, with who I feel God is, um, and uh, if I stand before God one day and God says. You know what, Ben? You're just too loving, too accepting, too whatever. And and you know, then I guess I'll deal with that at that time. Yeah. Um, but but <laughs> until well, and that's I you know I think that's that's part of that's part of the deal. I think for me, um, studying the life of Jesus and and literally trying to live out um, as best I know. It's best I know. That's all we're trying to do. Yeah. We, you know, we see through that glass dimly, right? So, um, uh, the, the, the live out the life of Christ and the story that he gave. And if I can stick to um, letting God be the one who convicts and changes and, you know, whatever that looks like for different people and different aspects of people's lives. And um, I just know I've never, I don't think I've ever been in an argument with somebody or a debate where they, at the very end, they went, you know what? You're completely right. Yeah. And walked away completely changed. <laughs> but what I have seen is living with people over time um, and talking about caring for the poor, for instance. And over time, living with them and then them, all of a sudden, you see this kind of passion igniting them to care for the poor. Right. Um, I, you know, I've even seen it in my parents' life. I feel like you know, my parents have, um, even from watching, you know, several people in their lives and, and maybe hopefully I've somewhat contributed to that but like parents even being like caring about kids in Africa yeah. kids in Asia or kids yeah. you know in Eastern Europe or wherever it might be um, whereas before I felt like you know we were very American centric yeah. and um, almost why would I care why would I and I'm not saying my parents ever said this but like the idea of why would I, why would I give money to something Overseas, when we have kids right here right. in America that are you know hurting, or, yeah. um, and this idea of our own has always kind of rubbed me wrong. It's like <laughs> we are all in the same family, and we are all doing our best, you know. Yeah. So. Do you think that um, 
being in uh, being in uh, the areas in the world that you had been in were sort of the things that kind of helped drive this frustration. Yeah, and they definitely led to some deconstruction. Uh, you know, I think um, the, the 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 idea of hell, the concept of hell, um, you know, being in the bush out in Africa somewhere and and thinking that this. 14 year old kid might starve to death and then be tortured forever and ever and ever, yeah. <laughs> you know, would basically leave hell and then go to hell. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, so though that idea and that concept, um, I struggled with as well of, um, you know, of an eternal punishment and torture and that kind of thing. And so definitely the, the, tr- the world travel and the, um, it definitely helped lead to some of that deconstruction and me trying to really figure out what I do believe. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, not that I believe that everybody that dies just wakes up and everything's honky dory, you know, I don't, I just, but I, at the same time, you know, I think about like the victims of Auschwitz, you know, being tortured to death in Auschwitz. And then because they didn't accept Jesus, they wake up and go to hell. I, yeah. I just, so those ideas and that, those concepts really, screw with your head. Yeah. They mess with me. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it is, it's a journey. I don't see why. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <That's probably. laughs> it's so blatantly obvious. <laughs> Um, I, 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 actually the first podcast I did was with a, um, with, was with a pastor. I worked at his church, worked at the church that he pastors for about four or five years and asked him like, have we screwed up as a church by preaching like the things or the byproducts of Christ rather than the person of Christ? Because like ultimately that even in the Bible, like that's what we were told to preach. You know what I mean? But we get caught up in the, well, don't do's and do this and don't do that. And and so like, he was like, absolutely. He was like, I think that that's been one of the biggest faults of the church. And I mean, I I, I think about like the book of James where he talks about chapter two or three, I don't know. But like, he talks about faith in action and it's, he's talking about feeding the poor and, if you see somebody that doesn't have something, then you just turn away. Like, are you really living in faith? Well, I believe in God, you know, but you're not helping right. someone who's in need. And so, like, I, I mean, you're a great example of that. So, well, the you know, if you even within Matthew, you know, if you take scripture it literally, the litmus test for the separation of the sheep and goats mm-hmm. is based on those who cared for the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's. Yeah, I, you, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a prisoner and you visited me. Um, you know, and then it's like, when did I? When did I? When did I do that? Yeah. You know? And um, and so, you know, I, I think, and then he turns right around and says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. You know, um, and that's the separation of the sheep and goats of mm. uh, a litmus test of um, you know, and I hear like our pastor will say often, he doesn't, you don't ever see in scripture where God says, you know, you're going to get to the judgment or whatever it looks like and say, and, and God says, well-believed, well-learned, well-educated. Yeah. No, he says, well done. Yeah. You know, what did you do? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, not, and not, again, we, then you kind of get into that whole faith and works and, and all that stuff too. But I think at the end of the day, if you believe something, you do it, yeah. you know, it drives you to, um, it drives you to action. And, yeah. and so, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, awesome and convicting and <laughs> scary and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, wrapping up, like I just have some questions. When does when does when do you feel most alive? Huh. I've been asking myself a lot this question lately. It's interesting that you would bring it up. Um, you know, I think um, I feel most alive when I feel like I'm helping other people be most alive. Mm-hmm. Um, when when people are thriving, um, and I, I I was able to play some sort of part in that. Um, I am most alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on a personal level of self care. Um, I'm most alive when I'm out in the sun, um, on a golf course, <laughs> um, in nature. I love, I love creation. Yeah. I love, I love nature. Um, and, uh, and so, so yeah, I'm, I'm most alive and I'm most alive when I am invited into the stories of, of, of people that are so unlike me. Mm. Um, you know, Melissa and I have a have a mutual absolute obsession with New York City. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we love New York, and one of the main reasons we love it is because of the conversion of cultures. Yeah. And you walk down the street, and all the different languages that you hear, and all of the um, the different colors of skin, and the beauty in the faces, and um, and we have an obsession with New York City, and it's really because of um, it's the it's the power in people's stories, mm. and um, and so uh, that's when I'm most alive. I think is when I'm in when I'm a part of somebody's story that um, is, you know that's been unsuspecting, that's um, nothing like me, um, and I get to learn more um, about who they are and their story. Yeah. Any daily habits that you've had that you've embraced that have helped you, mm. or in habits that you've let go as well yeah for sure um i think most recently what i've been trying to do um is write down a couple things that i'm grateful for every day Mm. so i have a little list by my bedside um dude gratefulness um i didn't realize how big of a thing that is especially when you struggle with anxiety like i i i'm I'm very anxious i'm a very anxious person i worry a lot um and, and so to take, take time in the now, mm-hmm. live in the present for a minute and be grateful for several things that are, and, and I've got so many things to be grateful for. And yet I constantly worry about those things that could have potentially happen. Yeah. Haven't happened yet. Or maybe they have, but I even mean, if they have. I mean, you're so me. Um, like I think about when you said entrepreneur, when we first started, you've got this entrepreneur spirit and you've got this, I mean, I kind of live in my head and then I worry about the the what ifs and, and like it's a big system. Yeah. I mean, Dumb. it's just, I lost my voice for the last two months. Um, just couldn't talk and anything. And so, mm. you know, doing what I do, like completely flipped me yeah. out. And I felt like about two weeks ago, I felt like God kind of was like, you know, you're praying, but you're still saying amen and being angry about the whole bit. Mm. And like, literally, like, I could barely talk. Like, I would talk. Mm. If I had to try to do this podcast, I would have started for 10 minutes and then been hoarse the rest of the time or could barely talk. So it kind of freaked me out. And so, like, I, I after, when I kind of felt like that was sort of the, the sentiment or what God maybe was trying to communicate, I was like, all right, I'm just going to start saying thanks. Thanks for the healing. Thanks. And literally the next day, I woke up and could speak in the morning better, and it gradually got better, and I just mm. continued to stay on that. 
and I don't know that it's, I, I, you know, one, it could be God's healing, or was it just the fact that I changed my perspective, yeah. and I was so wrapped up in anxiety over this whole thing, totally. that God yeah. just needed me to get out of my head, and to be thankful, you know, and, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. It's weird I, think, I think it completely, you, you have the power in your thoughts to, to I, you know, I, I don't want to get into new agey, but, but to, to really, I think, affect the future and affect, you know, your, your outcomes. I think if we live in a constant state of doubt and, and which, you know, which I do struggle with, um, Mm -hmm. and, and fear of what potentially could happen. Um, I think sometimes those things do happen because you basically will them to be so, you know? And so I think we do have so much power in our, um, in our daily actions. And so, yeah, that's, that's been a, um, a huge part of my, um, life the last several months. Um, I, I, I'm just coming out of Lent now, and during Lent, I read a prayer every single day. Um, that was basically once again, Ben, you can't do it all. You know, yeah. it's it's uh, <laughs> quit trying to do it all. You can't do it all, and, and you can't wear all this responsibility on your shoulders. You've you know, um, and so uh, so yeah. So those those are some practices. Um, I am I'm really really trying to live in the now like I'm really trying to be present mm-hmm. um, constantly because again having that kind of not even necessarily negative thought um, down the road but just you know work tomorrow work next week how, what am I going to do how am I going to handle this what am I going to um, and and when my kids are talking to me like looking them in the eyes and saying I'm here with you yeah. right now last, last night I took Haven out and taught her how to ride a bike without training wheels, yeah. you know. She'd been asking me for months to do this. And so finally last night, and I just remember, I just whispered to myself as I'm, you know, I'm holding her up running her bike. I'm like, Ben, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Yeah. And, um, you know, and she learned it and she was so excited, so thrilled. Um, and, and I just, don't miss it. Mm. Don't miss it. It's fleeting, you know. Yeah. So, Goodness. Um, best advice you've ever been given? Oh, man. Um, or just any advice you think yeah. that, that helped? From a, a mentor of mine, um, what are you believing right now? Mm. Is it true? Um, do you know that it's true? Um, and how would your circumstances, how would your mindset and your perception be different if it was true or if it weren't true Mm. um and i think so many times because of people like you said you kind of deal with the same thing but you know what what am i what am i thinking about right now is it true and then he said ask yourself again is it really true no and like well no maybe it's not (laughs) actually true you know um and and how would my how would my actions how would my um, how would I live differently if it weren't true mm-hmm. like if I weren't mm-hmm. living in fear of that thing yeah. that's that hangs out here that's really maybe not even reality yeah. like um, I saw a study I think it was from I want to say it came out of Cambridge several years ago many years ago probably seventy years ago but it was it was they did a study on worry and the things that people like myself worry about. And how like 96.3% of those things never actually come to fruition. <laughs> they never come true. Uh, we just worry about yeah. coming true. They could potentially happen. 
Um, and so I, I think for me, it's, it's this idea of, um, of, of living in reality, of, um, of trying to be honest um, with what is and, um, and not getting too caught up in the what if, mm. um, but living in what is. Yeah, I mean, it's just based off the statistic you just shared, like think about how much time Wasted. We miss and waste. Absolutely. About think, things that don't exist. Stress we cause in our lives, <laughs> anxiety. My, my wife is like, she is so phenomenal about n- not living in that space. Yeah. Like she just doesn't, she doesn't even entertain the fact that, it, you know, it, it could be another way. Like, why would you worry about that when it could or could not be true? Don't, don't waste energy and time with that. She yeah. just, she's so capable of not living in that space and, and I admire that so intensely. Um, so yeah, so I think for me, and it's probably just this, again, the season that I'm in, was, I don't know about advice over my entire life, um, you know, I think would, would be, um, man, live with great intention, um, intentionality of, um, of how you're impacting people, of um, living out your passion, um, and caring well for those around you loving well um yeah hmm. those any uh, any bad advice that you remember that... <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let's see i'll say names no yeah um no you know i think um bad advice i, I, I can't think maybe, I hope, hopefully i've just forgotten it <laughs> um maybe i just forgotten i, I don't i don't I, get the feeling that you've surrounded yourself unless you know unless looking back on your teens um, like that you've surrounded yourself with people that that no, speak yeah. crap into your, your life no I, I you know I think um, I think any sort of negativity or, or bad things that have come about in my life have, have been self-induced yeah. and not not spoken into by anybody else so any uh, I mean this is I know this is going to be hard but what are your uh, what books have most influenced oh, <laughs> I mean looking at your show I'm like Every one that's been written, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you mentioned one earlier, you know. Um, uh, yeah, how to win friends and influence influence people. I, I, I um, sheesh, that shelf. Um, and, you know, C.S. Lewis has always been an incredible uh, literary pastor to me. Um, Frederick Beekner, um, Secrets in the Dark. Um, was mere Christianity the one that really kind of mere Christianity was great. The Great Divorce, mm-hmm. um, incredible. Um, I I love Frederick Buechner. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, this one might be a little controversial, but I, I'm I'm a huge fan of Brian McLaren. He has one called A New Kind of Christianity. Um, I read it on when I was on the uh, sitting on a beach in Thailand one time. Um, I was out there for a conference for two weeks, almost two weeks, and. Um, I read it and wept Did you? Um, because I didn't feel like I was alone anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, Brian's been a pretty consistent voice in my life. Um, uh, I love Henry Nowen. I love Thomas Merton. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think, I, I lean at Richard Rohr. I lean heavily into the Catholic, the Catholic uh, faith and some of these um folks that kind of embrace the idea of mysticism mm-hmm. because it's, it's been the way I've been able to reconcile my faith yeah. is through mysticism um, and the idea of not knowing. Um, and so 
Um, yeah, I think I would have to name about 20 book titles to name the most influential. <laughs> um, but those are, those are some of the authors I think that have been, yeah. um, so incredibly, you know, I, early on in my, in my faith, um, Tozier, you know, A.W. Tozier, I read a lot of Tozier. Um, and, uh, I love Eugene Peterson. Yeah. I love Eugene Peterson. Um, I think he's just, a, just a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, so yeah. What about mentors? Any mentors? Yeah, I do. I've got I've got mentors. Um, you know, I think I think I have different voices in my life that speak business kind of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, my boss right now, Tim Smith, um, an older boss, Matt Panos. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're champions of me as a as a person and as a as a um, as a fundraiser and a person that works in development. Yeah. Um, they were they were champions of my career. Um, and, and, you know, like currently with my boss now, Tim Smith, he's a, he's also one that speaks wisdom and knowledge into a lot of business, um, aspects of my life. Spiritually, um, Ian Cron, um, Ian's a author, um, Episcopal priest, um, wrote a book called Chasing Francis, wrote another book called Jesus, My Father, The CIA and Me, um, Ian's a dear friend and uh, definitely a spiritual guide and mentor to me. Um, my wife mm. is one that speaks a lot of... Um, Who's now I, your pastor? Yeah, she's <laughs> my pastor, that's right. Uh, but she's one that speaks a lot of practical yeah. um, spiritual advice and influence in, um, in my life. and um, Just, I yeah. Wives... Tend to have that gift. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, sometimes you don't want to hear it, but sometimes you need to hear it. So yeah, she's um, she's one, um, and uh, yeah, I've got, I've got, I'm so grateful to have so many different um, people in different aspects of my life. You know, Stan Mitchell was one that was in the middle of my faith crisis. Mm-hmm. Who said, "Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, Ben. Let me help you reconcile this." Yeah. Um, and let me kind of walk you through, because, and, you know, he said, literally his words were, Anne Lamott once said, the two most powerful words in all of evangelism are, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. So I want to say that to you. Me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. I've been there, felt it, yeah. experienced the same kind of doubt, wrestling. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think uh, I've just, I've, I've been, you know, I feel very privileged. The power um, of empathy, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I didn't. I, I've never. Um, I've always sort of been a, a jerk of a, like I'm just. I've always been very like. Like narrow-minded and just saw it my way kind of thing, and and it's not until like your faith and your confidence in life and God and mm. everything is shaken up and then and yeah. rattled. And then you're able to see from different perspectives. Not not because you wanted that. Totally. Because everything's falling apart, and um, and just realizing how big of a role like uh, people being empathetic and caring and loving you plays in your life, and how like realizing how much you need that, and how necessary it is then to return it or to reciprocate it to other people as well. I mean, like yeah. I think that that's um. I think it's a big thing. It, it's huge. I mean, me it's too. Huge. I mean, it's you wouldn't. Well, it doesn't say well, and you know, and 
Matthew seven twelve. You know, it's right, not right. that. It's not from the Bible, but it is. It's very powerful. You know, it, it, along sense in life. It's huge, and and honestly, I think it's um. You know, we talk about changing people. Like, I want to change this person or change that person, and and really, um, empathy's and walking alongside is the only way anyone's ever changed. Typically, mm-hmm. you know, it's not through debate. Mm-hmm. It's not through dialogue. It's it's really through. Um, a living life with mm-hmm. and um, so yeah em- empathy is is something that unfortunately it's really overlooked in our in Christian culture mm-hmm. I mean it, it's something that is so necessary and yet um, you know yeah it's uh, in, in compassion you know to say I'm not I'm not just gonna watch I'm not just gonna care for you that you are suffering but I'm actually gonna walk with you through your suffering yeah, yeah. what keeps you motivated <clears throat> um Hutch and Haven, <laughs> keep me motivated for sure. Um, uh, this this driving kingdom that I feel is God's kingdom that is steadily coming to fruition, mm. bit by bit. Um, <clears throat> I feel like we are, um, you know, we we have access to information, obviously at a rate that's in, that's unprecedented in human history. And then in, the access to information has led us to focus on um, awful things that are happening around the world, mm-hmm. um, terrible things. Um, within an instant, we know when a bomb blasts in a Brussels airport, we know. Um, what I think it's caused us to miss is that God's kingdom is still moving, it's still marching on, and it's still growing. Mm-hmm. Um, that he is continuing he's continuing to reconcile and make all things new that um we are really on a um i I think there's there's a fear that things keep getting worse and worse and i just i don't see that i refuse to see it i think actually things um globally are getting better (laughs) people think that you're crazy um i feel like you know when i like i talked about earlier when we look at the the um, advance made on extreme poverty, on um, all these the diseases that are becoming less and less. These people that are you know, there's, there's far fewer children dying every day of malnutrition than have ever died in the history of mankind. Um, these are great advancements. These are great pro- this this great progress that's being made. Um, quite honestly, I think there's less people that die from war today than ever before in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I feel like um, while we have access to all this information right now and there's so much negativity in our world, um, we have just failed to put our eyes on things that are good and that are positive and that are making great contributions to the world and to humankind. And um, I think there's actually great progress being made um, in the world for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we look at China and, and how quickly, um, the message of God is spreading there, um, in places all around the world that, that were never experienced, um, God's love and mercy before experiencing it now. Yeah. And so, um, I think we can choose to set our eyes on things that are terrible and awful and that sells, Yeah. you know, I almost just mentioned a certain news source, but I won't. Certain <laughs> name them all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's exactly true. Um, but that 
fear-mongering cells yeah. and they they lock people into those TV screens and they sell you that this thing's going hell in a handbasket. Yeah. And um, I don't see it. Yeah. I, I, I'm very hopeful. Um, I'm very hopeful for the future. I'm very hopeful for my kids. Um, um, you know, I'm hopeful that they'll take care of the earth a lot better than I did. Mm. I'm hopeful that um, they'll love their neighbor a whole lot better than I did. Um, and uh, I'm hopeful that they'll see uh, people that are all, that are halfway around the world as as connected as connected as they do their next door neighbor. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a gorgeous thing. Yeah. I think there's something beautiful about that. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful. It's mm, great. Good word. What haunts you at night? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm haunted by the, the same things. I think that haunt so many of us, um, the health of my children, mm-hmm. you know, um, finances um the you know am i going to be able to pay for their college am i going to be able to do, you know it's 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 this it's the typical the answer is no, no. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, totally. yeah if, it, if it keeps going on the trajectory it's on now there's no way um but i think it's it's just those perfunctory uh issues that everybody kind of yeah. deals with and struggles with and um kids keep you humble yeah oh man my gosh yeah. not in a bad way no i yeah. but it keeps things real. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And, um, yes, I, I think, you know, unfortunately I should, I shouldn't be haunted by, um, so many things that I am haunted by, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I've, uh, we're, we're, we're so, we're so privileged, you know, we're so, uh, we have such great access to so many resources of life and things that we need every day that no. I'm never gonna have to worry about. Yeah. No, just yeah. no. So any regrets? Oh, regrets. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I've got a lot of regrets, but I try not to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to, I try to move on. And, and again, that's something that Melissa will teaches me, teaches me so much better than probably anyone in my life. Mm-hmm. If that, you know, you just can't live there. You can't, you can't go there. Um, but I do, I have them. Um, you know, there's been, there's been ways I've handled myself and, and, job moves and career changes that um, if I could go back, I would have handled them differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have done things differently. Um, but I learn. Yeah. I learn from it. And I try to keep mental notes and um, that next time it'll be different. Yeah. Um, I feel like this is sort of a repetitive question because I feel like in some way, shape, or form, you've already answered this, but like in the end, when you, what do you want to be most remembered for? Hmm. Like, for one, I hope, um, I hope my funeral is packed. Like, I hope it's packed out of people. Mm-hmm. Because I think the greatest gift you can give somebody is time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people would take the time to come would be the, would be the one thing. Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, people that maybe I've somehow along the way encouraged, um, poured into, um, and um, I, I want to be remembered as someone who loved well. Yeah. Um, uh, someone who was honest that wasn't afraid to admit that they don't have it all figured out mm-hmm. um, but that, that in spite of that loved well yeah. um, that's, that's how I hope to be remembered um, I was just kind of thinking about you uh, before I came over here and um, so again I have to like if I don't put it down on paper or computer my thoughts will derail so 
um, I just wanted to recognize you and acknowledge you for being um, a person of faith, like whether you realize it or not, but more than that, a person of faith and action. And it's really inspiring mm-hmm. uh, uh, for being a leader to not only your family, but to <clears throat> the many people like myself that you've led uh, in the war on poverty and bringing hope to the to deteriorating people around the globe. Um, our relationship, I feel like, is a sum of moments here and there, but I want you to know that, that you're appreciated and I'm, I'm thankful for you, uh, for what you've done, what you're doing uh, to promote change and justice around the world. And um, man, I really I really feel like it was the Lord that I was supposed to spend time with you because like, mm. I just want to tell you thank you because like, just listening to you talk today, like I honestly, personally feel very inspired and sort of feel better, like a better person as a result of our time together. Uh-huh. And I really feel like that's evidence of like, for whatever reason, you were one of the first people that popped my mind when I said, I'm, I think I'm going to start a podcast. And, and um, I don't know, I just, I hope many blessings on you, pray many blessings on you, Thanks, Melissa and your family. And I, I really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, man I really mean that. It's an honor. Honestly. Sir. Thank you. Thank you.